Thinking Aloud podcast. This is your host, Mendel Silverman. I am excited for you guys to be joining me on this journey of me seeking to understand the world around and my place in this world. I think the best way to make sense of this world is by thinking, and the highest level form of thinking is thinking aloud, thinking in conversation with the people around us. So your first guest is none other, Zevi Zen from Seekers of Unity. Go check out his channel when you're done with this. And I really hope you listen to the whole thing and give me feedback and criticism. Let me know how I can do this better. I'm looking forward to your questions. How long ago did you start the Seekers of Unity channel? I started, it must have been something like three years ago. I mean, I'd been working on it. It's funny that you mentioned like the, your own creative thought process. My initial idea was to write a book. I think there's a certain like age demographic where it's like we grew up on books as a primary medium and we thought like we want we have ideas to share with the world. Mm-hmm. because of things that we discovered in books and what better way to do that than to write our own book. Right. Um, and I was like collect thinking and writing and collecting and drafting. I think I even came up with like an introduction and a first chapter for probably what was like close to a decade, not consistently, but like on and off. And um, a friend of mine, Yitzhak Abusera, um, he was like, Zevi, you read books. <laughs> Some of your friends read books, but no one's really reading books these days. Which is not entirely true, but 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 he's he's talking like from a market perspective, which is where he's has his strength. And he's like, Zavi, stop creating content online. Like the ideas that you're trying to flesh out in your book, stop putting them out in, in audio form and video form. And it was terrifying like to do the first video. I think the first upload is always the hardest for anyone trying to get into the space. But I did. It was like a short, just like a book review. It was like the least commitment that I could do. Mm-hmm. It's like, here, I read this book. These are my thoughts in it. And right away, like there was an interest in people people were looking for an intersection of really rigorous intellectual honesty and thoughtfulness and mysticism and meaning and existential themes. Um, so that was about three years ago. I did it ironically because I was very lonely at the time. I had moved back home to Australia mm-hmm. and I didn't really have many friends there. All my friends were married and overseas. And um, it, was a way to, it was a way to put my hand up in a global conversation and to invite people into that conversation with me, which really worked, thank God. And I'm really glad that it worked. Um, and then I was uploading sporadically, like um, every, like once a month or so, not really following any trajectory, no, no series in mind. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back to Israel and COVID hit, uh, a friend of mine here, Alyssa Siegel, she was like, Savvy, if you're gonna do this, do it seriously, upload once a week, have a format, have a series, like choose topics, go through them thoroughly so people can come and follow and learn something and not just a bit here and a bit there. Um, and I hate to say this, but like the timing with COVID worked well because this is a bit noisy. Um, so it worked well. Everyone was stuck Hopefully at home. will be the only part of this conversation that's a flop. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Um, 
there is something poetic about like the sail catching the wind like you know moving somewhere it's like the the Bashanta's horse being driven off somewhere so that's that's when I started to do it really consistently so what's it been like two years now since COVID started or something like that mm-hmm. um, yeah it's been a wild it's been a wild journey and I have to say I don't like maybe not for an audience but just for yourself like thinking think of going into this in a full-time way there is something to be said about keeping your passion and your income separate because sometimes if people say if you if you if you love your work or you do you what you love you, you don't life. work a day in your life but also you turn what you were most passionate about into something that you need to put bread with, yeah right. to put to put bread on the table and and that may be a way to to uh, stifle or kill your passion so i would i would give some thought about about giving up other forms of income and just right. going directly into this Kind of from experience you're I'm talking? Speaking, I'm speaking from experience. Yeah. I mean, I have a bit of a different setup where I have like extremely, extremely low living costs, mm-hmm. uh, being young and free and single and being very frugal in general. Um, but anyway, something, something to consider for yourself. Yeah. I, like it when, I, when I'm Joe Rogan big, like, okay, it's one <laughs> thing. Like, okay, I, I, but even Joe Rogan has multiple yeah. multiple sources of income. Yeah. It's not just this yeah. conversation. It's, it's, it's good to keep those open and to, yeah. and to keep... To keep like a bit more of a diverse. Like Hazal says, do you not use the Torah as a crown to dig with? Correct. Right? Correct. Like it's uh, correct. It's it's wild. Like it's not meant. To, like the Rambam in Hilchas Talmud Torah, in Hilchas Deus, like he just discusses how you're not allowed to, like like oh you shouldn't pay you shouldn't pay your teachers like there there's a certain like they can't be using it as a means of parnasa. So, yeah. Okay, we yeah. have all these loopholes like if it's the culture and this is how people make money and you wouldn't be able to get a teacher otherwise okay then you could pay him but idea like you shouldn't be using your passion right your ultimate passion yeah, yeah. Uh, as yeah. A, a means of an income yeah it's a complex issue and i think rambam really represents that best because he spends most of his time as a doctor when he on our metric he should have been you know working as a rabbi and teaching and preaching and writing um, but there is something very important both both to, pr- to protect the profession itself from corruption and from abuse, and also to protect the people that have that passion, so it's not stuff that it's and it's a complex. I mean, and there are good arguments on both sides here, but but there definitely is a very strong position in Judaism, which which argues against conflating passion, particularly when it comes to education. And I income. have this, like with I don't know whether it's the influencer, like any influencer or coach who's offering courses on. Like, here's how you can no longer be angry or anxious or whatever they're offering you. You're, they find your pain point, right? We yeah. all have that. We all, like, it's wild. You can make an Instagram slide and every single person in the world will relate with every quote you have on there because yeah. you have some sense of existentialist human nature. And here I can offer you a solution and all you have to do is buy my course. Uh, there's, like, I'm like, wherever I see myself monetizing, I don't, I don't want it to be there's a, I think it was his name, Alex Hermesi, or uh, he's like a business, social media marketing guru. And he's uh, his line is, I have nothing to sell you. Hmm. And he's, it's true. He's like, he, he, like, he's not offering any courses and everything. He has a, he has a huge company that invests in startups and businesses. And so God, my aim is to make you as lucrative and financially successful as possible that you'll come work with us. And, and one day you'll be part of our portfolio. But yeah. There's a certain like authenticity that he's I'm, I'm just teaching I'm just sharing the wisdom I've collected I've had and something like I love about that Joe Rogan doesn't sell anything even Jordan yeah. Peterson as soon as he switched to this explicitly financially like uh, 
capitalistic model like is like he okay he leaned into his brand a little bit more yeah. he solidified his identity yeah. he's chosen to be a certain way he signed up with the daily wire yeah. like uh there's certain like I don't, know, I don't know what it means to sell out but like uh that we have we have this phrase sell out like yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah. that's yeah it's a tricky thing because on the one hand we want our creators and creatives and artists and visionaries to be able to not just be starving artists because starving artists eventually aren't able to <laughs> produce because well their <laughs> their work is only great when they're dead so it's yeah, okay yeah. it's fitting which is which is a shame <laughs> that they have to die for that to happen yeah. um and on the other hand it's a real it's there's a real problem of of that of that seller mentality and there needs to be a way to find a balance where where nothing's being sold i mean i feel very lucky because i don't really have many expenses so none of my stuff is behind a paywall none of my courses are like everything that I make is available for free and I'm not selling anything. And so there's a bit of like an anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist bend in like this intellectual milieu, which I partake in. Um, so it would feel wrong if I was like selling t-shirts and cups and stuff like that. But um, I do hope to have a mug that people have in their house one day though. So like, <laughs> that's a goal. <laughs> I, think if you're, I think if you're selling a mug for like, for so people can feel part of community and identity and like it's part of like a marketing strategy for people to to see you and talk about you and like get the idea out there that's okay but um the sense where it becomes like where like the object that we're marketing is first and then our content is second which you see mm -hmm. sometimes with these creators and i think it's i think it's very challenging because i mean this is a general problem with social media as well where the more the more antagonistic and aggressive and inflammatory and incendiary you are which is why you see many, so many people sliding into politics, into, into politics, because it's really easy views and easy clicks. Mm -hmm. um, the, the algorithms don't seem to reward thoughtfulness and deliberation and doubt, and, and, and which is what we really need in this world. Right? We, we don't right. need more incendiary Certainty, pundits selling, yeah. selling teacups. Um, and there's, so there's also that, that economic lure where it's like, oh, I can sell a product and what I was, you know, but I think it's interesting. It's, these are definitely interesting challenges. And I'm, I think we're in a lucky moment in history to be facing these challenges. The, the fact that we have the capacity to be having these global conversations. For me and you to sit down here, we, we connected because, because we both picked up our hands to partake in this global conversation. Right. Uh, and the fact that you can pull out your phone and, and we could share this with the world and people can... I think it's... With all the challenges, I think it's an incredible opportunity. And it's, I mean, more than like a... As you say, when you say global conversation, like for me, it's like what is it i'd like to do with my life i look at history almost or all like and what's to come as essentially a a giant forum a giant chat room of of minds asking essentially the same questions over and over and over again and and there's people who contributed more to the conversation or less and like it's like i'd like to be somebody who i don't know how it will be where where, where exactly but i'd like to participate in this conversation like that's like you like you look as an example the Gemara right it's oh it's just a page of Gemara it looks like a back and forth conversation but right. that's 700 years right, right there and then right. forget Rashi and everybody else it's the original like, podcast yeah exactly <laughs> with it where you can call in yeah right. like right. the audience can call it right. um so what is a seeker of unity what is a seeker of unity yeah <sighs> it's a great question um I was sitting on my couch like the night before I uploaded the first video and I was like, I need a name for this project. And um, I have a very close friend 
um, he's been behind the scenes in much of the project. And the real tragedy of the project is that it's me who's front of shop and not my brilliant, brilliant friends who really put me to shame uh, in, in depth and knowledge. So this one friend of mine, Menachem Lanowitz, he was also talking about starting a some sort of podcast or channel, which I've been nudging him to do for probably close to a decade and he still, he still hasn't done it, but hopefully he will. And he was thinking of calling it um, Seeking Crowns. Seeking Crowns. Yeah, I'll tell you why. There's a medrash, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, when Moses receives the Torah from Sinai, he has this sort of, um, his, this, this vision which flies him forward in history and he's sitting in the classroom of Rabbi Akiva, one of the greatest sages of the Talmud. And um, it's a very elaborate and complex and, and a, a midrash which is full of raw emotion and very, some very gruesome themes. But in one of the scenes in this vision that Moses has, Akiva is sitting, sorry, God is sitting and attaching crowns to the letters of the Torah before, like preparing this gift that he's going to give to the Jewish people through Moses, the bride. Mm-hmm. Um, at Sinai and before the gift is ready he's like putting the final touches and one of the final touches is the crowns on top of the letters which we see in, in Hebrew scribalots and suffer mm-hmm. uh, and Moses asks why are you attaching these crowns and he says that this person in the future Akiva who you see in the vision he uh, on every single crown he's going to expound mountains and mountains of halacha of, of ways of coming closer to God and um, so Menachem was going to call these podcasts Seeking Crowns continuing the work of, of Moses and Akiva and God of expounding the crowns of the letters. What is it that sits above and adorns and crowns our, our spiritual practices, our, our Judaism or whatever tradition we belong to? And I was like, oh, I like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to riff on you, Menachem. <laughs> um, so that, that notion of seeking something, that we're here, we're not here with answers. I don't provide answers in the, in the podcast. But we're, we're here seeking something together. And it's an ongoing project, like you said. It's the same podcast that started at Sinai that continued in the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Zohar that continues through to today. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, but I couldn't, I couldn't exactly copy him or else that would be plagiarism. And a good artist is someone who steals from many people, not just from one. So I, I, I was, there's, a, there's a poem. It's attributed to a character in the 16th century uh, in Sfat, um, which is recited by practicing Jews every Friday night, Anna Bakoach. Uh, in Aramaic. It's a, it's a very beautiful, um, enigmatic um, poem. So one of the phrases in there is um, O mighty one, referring to God. Um, those that seek your unity, uh, protect them like the apple of your eye, or the pupil of your eye. Um, and so that phrase had always stuck with me, that who are these people that we are praying for every week? Who are the Dorshe Yechudcha? And to me, the Dorshe Yechudcha are the mystics of every tradition who are trying to seek out the unity of being, um, who have intimations of a state of being which is beyond time and beyond separation and beyond otherness that's um, soaked and permeated by, by love and by, by the presence of, of the sacred and by compassion and bliss. And it's a state of unity where, where, where otherness falls apart, where us and them, where me and you, where here and now all seems to be a joke in the grand cosmic scheme, which melts into this, this oneness. And this, this to me is like the classic vision of the mystic. So I would say the seekers of unity are the mystics, f- first and foremost. And that isn't just a historical category. Um, there was a Christian theologian, uh, I think it was Rainer, who said that the Christian of the future 
will either be a mystic or no Christian at all. And I think that that could be extended to, to religion in general, that the, the person of religion of the future will either be a mystic or, no, or not a religionist at all. Um, so I think that the seekers of unity are, are, is really anyone who's looking to find intimacy and closeness with themselves, with each other, with the world around them, with nature, and with the divine, the sacred, whatever that means. That's who I think the seekers of unity are, both historically and, and today. So what, what exactly is unity? I mean, because <laughs> we, we, when I watched your episodes, it's mainly pointing out differences. Mm -hmm. and, it, as, and like, okay, we can, are we, are we seeking a, sh like a shared vision that everybody has? Or are we looking at the differences between them? And right, like we have the Jordan Peterson, okay, we can aggregate all the religions and, and, and poetry and wisdom throughout the world and show how it's all seeking one particular aim or, and they just have their different paths on and doing as such. Like when I think of unity, I, I hear, okay, you have your achtos, right? We need that. We need achtos. We need togetherness. And then you have the unity of, of tyranny. And then you have the yeah. unity of like, and then there's sameness, which people conflate with, with unity. Yes. And I yeah, just, if, if I gave you enough to riff yeah. on. So that, I really appreciate that question. <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I think that there's a mistake that we make. We think that unity means the obliteration of distinction or diversity. Um, and that's where we get something like sameness. Um, Hegel, the German philosopher, calls it the dark night in which all cows are black. So no matter what color the cow actually is, when it's dark, they all just look black. Um, and it's just like a, one big casserole, one big chalent, where everything is just lost any semblance. And that's not the type of unity that I'm looking for. Um, if the, for marketing purposes, I had to make the channel name something short and concise, but if I could really stretch it out, it would be seeking unity in diversity, where there's a point where difference, and this is going to get maybe a little heady for a second. You're going to like Derrida and... Yeah, I was, okay. was going to Derrida this a little. <laughs> there's a point where, there's a point where, where and I'll, I'll actually, I'll try to make sense of it because sometimes it's not made sense of much. There's a point where difference uh, and identity, which are seen as opposites, are not actually opposites. How that works is that, uh, and this is a notion which goes back to the core logic of mysticism, um, probably most like finely articulated by Nicholas of Cusa in the 12th, 13th century. He came up with this phrase in Latin as coincidente oppositorum, which is the coincidence of opposites, the, the, the place where opposites meet. We have this idea in Judaism of... Coincidence of, as opposed to coincidence, right? Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We have the idea in Judaism, of Judaism of, of the nois ha'afachim, or the nimna ha'nim nois, of this sense where there's, there's A and B, right? And they're stuck in a paradigm of oppositionality, where it's either one or the other, right? This is like a classic Aristotelian logic. It's either true or false. It's either this one or that one. It can't be both. But then there is what's known in Jewish thought as the third, which encompasses both of them. There's a third, which is categorically other than them. And we see this... Which, which, which brings them into reconciliation, although from one plane of existence, they don't seem reconcilable. We find this practice in Jewish hermeneutics and Jewish literary interpretation, where if we have two verses, anyone who, who um, Davin Shachar in the morning recognizes from the 13 principles of Rabbi Yishmael, um, 13 hermeneutical principles, that there, if there are two verses that seem to contradict one another, 
there's, there's going to be a third verse, which is going to be Machriya Bainiyam, which will, which will solve the two of them together. The way it works is that we generally see things on a, on a single plane of existence. There's a really great book from this fellow by the name of Abbott called Flatland, where he talks about um, what, what, would, what would it be like to live on a two-dimensional plane. Um, and into that two-dimensional plane would, would appear a three-dimensional object. How would that appear to the two-dimensional beings, right? I think it's conceivable. It's, uh, so, so what would actually happen is if you had, so he has a sphere that comes into the realm and the sphere at the very bottom appears just as like one point in the line. And then as the sphere comes, comes further into that plane, it becomes, the line becomes expanded because you're seeing more of the sphere. And then as it goes through, it becomes smaller again. It's a whole, it's a very, very interesting, like mental trip based on some really wild mathematics and geometry. But the basic point is that there's, there's a plane of existence upon which we live, which is two dimensional, where, where things seem to be fundamentally um, oppositional. We cannot both be uh, here and not here at the same time. We cannot both be God and not God at the same time. We can, whatever, whatever axiom we're going to be putting forward. This, is, this may be a bit of a complex answer too, but, but, but I hope it's okay. Um, but there's a higher plane of existence, and higher is the wrong word, because higher is buying itself, in, higher is, 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 buying, is purchasing into an oppositional duality again. But there's a place where where place doesn't exist, where high doesn't exist, where opposition doesn't exist. And in that space, that which is different and that which is, that which is identical are not distinct from, from one another. And it's in the differences that we can find identity, and it's in our identity where we find difference. It's in, it's in our differences that we can find identity, and it's in our identity that we can find difference. Okay, I'll, I'll bring, I'll, I'll bring, yeah, I'll bring that down in, in practical terms, in mm-hmm. psychological terms. Me and you, we're, we're two different people yet we have a lot in common and it's in it's in our differences where we can find identity right so if if you if you have a certain um passion for for a certain type of music and i and i like a different type of music so there's a difference there but we can begin to see in what ways we might have some sort of shared perceptions based on what we appreciate as as different as distinct because if if everything that you had, I had, then we would not be two people. We would just be a clone of the same person. And you would learn nothing about yourself or me. Mm-hmm. It's when we're able to disambiguate and differentiate between ourselves where we can come to some sort of understanding. The reason why conversation is interesting is because your experiences are not my experiences and, and the things you know are not what I know. And we come to experience each other and learn from each other. And that's a difference which brings us into conversation and into relationship with one another. And then in our identity, there's lots of things that we share. We're both, we're both male. <laughs> A big bug. <laughs> we're both, <laughs> we're both, uh, we yeah. both don't want to get bitten by big bugs. And these things bring us, these things that, that are identical between us are able to show where there's a possibility for us to, to, to be different as well and to have differentiations in those. I, I don't know if I'm articulating this particularly well. Um, Could I, I'm just so I can butt in. There's, yeah. it's, So why not? What like what's the difference between someone who's seeking difference and yeah. somebody who is seeking unity? Like, because I got, there's a tremendous amount of value, which is some an area where I'm so weak, right? Like, you look at different la- like the same words could be referring to different things depending on which context. So like the Rambam, the the intellect versus the intellect in in chapter three versus chapter one, yeah. right? It's it's he's using the same the same word, right? But he's referring to 
it's a different resolution or a different level of analysis or whatever it is. The like so if we maybe hone in on the Rambam, like it, we can see that okay, his influence from the fake Aristotle and his and his and and the two gods of 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 Moses, right? Like versus like okay, is there a shared like I I fundamentally believe the Rambam in all of his works is somehow integral and you could and he's hyperlinking and self-referencing yeah. and creating paradox and maybe that's the biggest uh like representative like piece of evidence that the Rambam was a mystic is the fact that he introduces so much paradox yeah. for you to existentially be in turmoil and angst for the rest of your being like he like, but he seeks making distinctions and discriminating and discerning. He's a very discriminatory yeah. and discerning individual yeah. like, in his pursuit of unity, right? Because he says, what's the ultimate aim is knowing Dea Mitis or De knowing God, whatever translation we have of it. Like, so he's su simultaneously seeking unity, but by making distinctions and, and, and codifying and measuring, which is all, like, for me, those are like, he did essentially unify all of Torah Shabbat Pet and say you can read it in my book with yes. one opinion yeah. and say that that's that you've learned all of Torah yeah. so I don't know, like I, I just like I, I'm scared of this seeking of unity but I'm I'm, I'm a seeker of synthesis so it was, yeah. would maybe yeah. the way I would put it yeah. for myself like yeah. how do these work with each other yeah. how do I use Greek language philosophy psychology Hasidus like yeah. how do I I'll, I'll give let's I, I want to try I'll try jump in there with an idea um, and there's like there's so many different angles to approach this with which makes it an, an interesting challenge as part of the, the beauty of conversation there's this notion of the unity of God right um, so classic Jewish literature and then picked up by the Kabbalists speak about how before anything existed there was just God God and God's pure unity um, we Again, in Jewish liturgy, we have the Adon Olam prayer, that's, um, that which which says that Adon Olam Hashem Alach B'Tarim Kol That was God existed before anything else existed. God was there in God's unity. And And once everything is done, and once the whole universe evaporates into into you know some sort of the the final death of, of the last sun of, of all the galaxies, God again will will exist alone in God's unity. So. The question then that the mystics ask is, if the purpose of existence is to come to this, this unity of God, then why did God see the need to, to manifest the cosmos at all? God had God's unity, and, and that unity was, was achieved. Why go through this whole... It wasn't achieved, it just is. It was, it, it just is. is, right. It will be. Like, <laughs> That's right. Oh, is, was, is, and will be, right? Yeah. Um, so why go through this whole process? And, and the Kabbalists read it as a very painful process. God has to contract God's self in this act of tzimtzum, and there's, there's, there's a cataclysm, there's, there's this shattering of, of the, this shvira that happens. So why go through the whole thing? And the Kabbalists, uh, and, and later the Hasidic masters, answer something very beautiful. That there is, and it's, it's probably borders on heresy, if not outright heresy, but the Kabbalists don't mind that, it seems. <laughs> yeah, they can get away with it. They say that God's unity before the existence of, of anything else. And even to say before is a nonsensical yeah, term makes, in that yeah. context, right? Because <laughs> um, it, that moment is still here, it always is. is, is a unity which has no multiplicity. And in that it's lacking something. The unity which is achievable 
through the creation of the world is a diverse unity. To say that God is lacking something and, and is itself a high heresy, but, uh, but, but the image that they use to describe it is that when God leads the Jewish people out of Egypt, uh, according to the biblical narrative, there are 600,000 people that leave. And those represent the 600,000 archetypal souls, or sort of the, um, the, the, the base souls of, of all the people of Israel. And what happens in that moment is there's like this full manifestation of the face of God in the collective, in the people, which is not achievable without the people, which is why in Jewish law, if you see 600,000 Jews gathered together, you make a blessing. There are certain rare blessings we make in Judaism. Mm -hmm. There's a blessing that we make in the sun. I think it's every every 17 or every some. I think it's every 17 years we did it. We did it a few years ago. So there's one. There's a blessing we make when you see 600,000 people, and the, the the blessing is Chacham Harazim, the one who knows the secrets. And the secret basically is how God, which is one, one consciousness, can manifest in 600,000 individuals with no two sharing the same face. And yet all of those faces come together to make the face of God. And when they come to Sinai and they're there as one person with that face reunited, that, that entire part suf of the people, that is when revelation takes place. And that in some sense is revelation. So this balance between this pure unadulterated unity where, where there's entire sameness and there's no differentiation, that God had already in some sense, but it wasn't, it wasn't interesting. It was lacking something. And what it was lacking was diversity. What it was lacking was particularly, what it was lacking was, was me and you and our idiosyncrasies. Yeah, my, my little, my 12-year-old Mendel pipes up and he's like, okay, but there was no concept of diversity before you created diversity. There was no, con like, like, the answer is like, why did God have to create a world like this? Is because in order for us to, in order for us to have real pleasure and godlike pleasure, a real hana, a real time of whatever word we're going to put on it, you need to, right, like, you need to work for it, right? You need to create it. I'm like, well, you created the laws of nature that we have to work that way and that it has to function that way. Create it that we could have the ultimate pleasure without any yeah. of this. Uh, yeah. No, so it's very clear that, that the ants that the Kabbalists are giving are not, they're not a priori. They're not speaking from God's position forward. They're speaking from our position backwards. They're saying, what, what do we have now and what was necessary in doing this? And what is, what is the deepest of our experiences where we can encounter godliness? And how may we see that as being the purpose of creation? Um, and I think that there's something quite beautiful in that way of looking backwards. It may not be philosophically um, rigorous in the sense that, it, that this makes sense from, from God's perspective forward. But if we look backwards, the sense of where do we encounter the greatest divinity within ourselves? Is it when we are lost and we have no individuality? Or is it when we're most capable of, of fully being ourselves and manifesting the divinity that is Mendel, the divinity that is Zevi. And in that deepest self-expression, there's a beautiful, beautiful Hasidic idea. I think it's from the Piazzetz, and he writes that we speak about Moses, the giver of the Torah, as the most, the Bible calls him the most humble man who ever, who ever walked the face of the earth. And, and, and later Jewish literature refers to him as, as this channel that just godliness poured through his throat, that the Shechina spoke through his mouth. And the Piazzetz, I believe it was, writes that God did not speak through Moses as if Moses was some sort of vacant, empty vessel because he was so wiped clean of himself and therefore God could just pour through, which is generally how we conceptualize it. He says and said that Moses was so fully himself, so fully manifesting what it was to be Moses, 
that he was manifesting God through Asmoses, through the cosmos expressing as himself. And I think that in that perspective, there's a real beauty. There's, there's a, there's a medrash which, which asks, why did God, there's a, there's a, there's a verse in Genesis, which says that God, uh, consulted before creating Adam. God, God says, Nase Adam let us make man in our image, mankind's yeah. image. And, and the, the rabbis try to give all kinds of explanations of, of who's God, who is God talking to? <laughs> is it some sort of pantheon? Like, is it Zeus and Jupiter that God is saying, let us create mankind in our image? So one answer is God is consulting with the angels, which, he, which we see God doing in the book of Job and other. God is consulting with heaven and earth because that's where Adam comes from. Very beautiful answers. The one answer which the Zohar picks up on is that God is consulting with the souls of the righteous. That there's these sort of eternal souls of the righteous which exist before Adam, which God speaks to. And then the Zohar follows up with that answer by saying, if God, that if God already had the souls of the righteous, then why create the world at all? You have the righteous here with you, just hang out with the righteous. So, you know, the, the, the Talmud says that that in the future, in the, in the end of days, God will have this dance party with the righteous, with the souls of the righteous, which seems like sort of the goal of, of, of creation. So if you have your righteous... So we'll go to the dance party with the righteous. <laughs> if you have... Right, that's what, <laughs> What's the goal? A dance party, ultimately. <laughs> it's a, a silent dance party. <laughs> yeah, with the headphones on, no yeah, one else can hear. It's kind of what I, each one listening to their own track. Right. Um, think, what is Nietzsche's line like if you I think it's Nietzsche like if you look at somebody and those that were know, seen dancing with seen thought, without without the music without the music we like, thought we thought might have been those that couldn't hear the music exactly yeah so so the, the question then is if God already has his righteous with him then just get the DJ and you and you have your party you don't need to do this whole ter- and I mean existence is terrible the amount of suffering and pain and bloodshed and agony and boredom and loneliness and and in addition to all the beautiful things so why do it all and the Zara says in order to take those souls of the righteous, the soul of the tzaddik, and convert them through the process of, 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 of existence, of embodiment, convert them into bali trivat, into people who have mastered the return to God. And in that, there's a sense where the tzaddik is something, he's a bit boring. Yeah, yeah he's, I've always... He's this perfect, like, goody-two-shoes angel. He, like, he doesn't know what it means to sin and to return, to lose himself and to find himself again, or herself. Uh, but the Batshuva... The one who the one who's been there and done that is there that's interesting because there their personality shines through why is why is augustine's confession so such captured the imagination for for centuries and millennia because there's a person there who falls and stumbles and sins and then returns to god and there's a sense of 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 that being an introduction of diversity and that being a a denial of pure unmitigated unity you grew up Chabad, right? Yeah. And I imagine, I think Chabad in Australia is a little different than it is in the States, right? You have your big heads. Not There's not a big Meshachist presence in, in Australia, if I'm mistaken, correct? Um, because Gutnik, I know, is rather... There, there is... It's a, it depends on Sydney and Melbourne. They have a bit of different demographics. But I would say Chabad of Australia is a bit more chilled out, particularly okay. Sydney because we're near the beach. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you have to be. And are, are your parents Balchuba? No. No, okay. So my parents are Bali Chuva. And like from the young ages like that, like like I would I would my dad would sit and teach me Tanya at thirteen years old and, and I like I'm like, I want to feel what you feel when you read this book, hmm. but I sure as hell don't feel it. Yeah. And there was this like the and then the archetype of the Balchuva of, of having lived a life and then chosen between 
other and like um, to make a choice as opposed to it just being what I received yeah. from really young I was like 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 you had this opportunity mommy and tati like you had this opportunity to choose and to and to become this as opposed to just being handed to you and like there was like a, but there's this language of like okay like right it's all good it's 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 everything is good god is good the world is good we know it now here it is believe it live like this and it's almost like as a like almost from like the nietzsche inside of me like i, I don't wish an easy life on anybody on anybody close to me right like i would like because there's I want the ball tube, I want the struggle, I want to fall, like give me this opportunity. And I was like, why would you ever want your kid to be from, from birth? Um, and this, but there's this, when I went growing up Chabad and with the Hasidic world like this, almost like shame at looking at the darkness and looking at, and it's just all about the light, it's all about the light, it's all, but we're, we keep talking about bring light into darkness, bring light into darkness. And as these, like, but we forget that there's the darkness there and like there's something the reason we're bringing light into the darkness is because there's something interesting in the darkness yeah. and there's something interested interesting there but i get this I, my allergic reaction to mysticism or kabbalah is it's just everything and anything goes it's not rigorous it's not it doesn't allow for there to be rules of discernment and distinction at least on the low level that i've been introduced to like as my life has progressed i've met people who are like okay they're kabbalists or mystics or whatever you want to call them but they're also deeply rational and capable of utilizing the language of rationality and, and psychology in order to, to give over their mystic unity, sameness, oneness, shlemos-like viewpoint of the world. And I, like I, I, I still, like when I go to Tzfat, I love it, but I'm also like, like, I just feel like it's a bunch of suckers. Like there's a certain, yeah. like, it's mysticism, it's powerful, it's moving, it clearly is it's speaking a language that even if I clearly don't understand it, it's saying something to me. But it's also just the amount of people I see who are using Kabbalah and mysticism as a tool to, and from my outside perspective, to manipulate people yeah. into following sure. them. And sure. it's like, I, I resonate with the Rambam. Like you're better like, oh, it's all bullshit. Like, yeah. as opposed yeah. to like, we're better off thinking it's all bullshit and let's just neglect it. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, like, how do, how do we, oh, like, you're, you seem to be doing a good job, but how do we be both rigorous and yeah. mystics? And yeah. So I think, I think it's definitely possible, and I think it's really important to do it. I, and I, I mean, who was it? Um, George Carlin, who said that whatever, whatever someone is doing in their life, they have to think it's, they think it's the most important thing that, like, that is to be done in that moment in time. And I think that we have to believe that. We have to believe that what it is that we're doing. Uh, is the most important thing, at least for us, and, and, and to know that it's from our perspective. But I really do think that, that finding a, a rigorous um, and thoughtful and rational and empirical grounding for mysticism may be the most important thing to do in this moment, and I think that it's something which has been happening for the past few decades, um, and it's converging now. And I think it's, I think it's, an, so I, th I think it's really imperative that it converges at this moment. And there are, for every person who's trying to do it rationally, and thoughtfully and sensibly and and responsibly there are there are a dozen charlatans um which is all the more reason to to up our efforts and trying to do it seriously and responsibly i think we need to roll things back um and and sort of play a thought experiment which is which is one of the tools of philosophy um and 
the reason that I do this is because I think that we need to approach this cluster called mysticism from a few different angles um, because people think differently. We need to approach it historically, psychologically, scientifically, philosophically, um, and sort of each one has, I'll try to give the, the ground roots for each one and then each person based on their own predilection. Some people are more scientifically and empirically oriented and, and there is there is the science to pursue in that direction. And then there are some people who are more philosophically oriented and there's the, etc. So maybe maybe because science has become simply the dominant cultural narrative of, of truth, we'll start with the scientific, but I'm happy to move on to the other ones as well. There's a few ways to approach the intersection between science and mysticism, and many of them have been done bad, and where the charlatans prosper is mostly in this space of, of trying to sell whatever quack science as, as sort of confirming mysticism. Well, they call themselves doctor, but they're really a chiropractor. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, um, there's no, there's no, there's no lack of those. So let's try and be, and I'm not a scientist, so let's try to be very humble and careful in doing this. Firstly, in terms of what's most immediate and empirical is our own experience, right? Um, now, the fact that people have, the fact that people self-report uh, what's referred to as a mystical experience uh, is something which has been documented throughout history and continues to happen today and is not hard for us to trigger today. It can be done through meditation, through silence, it can be done through, through music, love, or it can be done in a laboratory with, with psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, studies, psilocybin, psychedelics, acid, um, LSD were all classed as grade A drugs. Um, for, for, for many decades, but they're, they're now back in studies. And the studies that are coming out of the top labs in the, in the medical scientific world today, John Hopkins and others, are showing with empirical research that people who have a, uh, a psychedelic experience, right, rate that experience as, um, I think it's one of the top five most meaningful experiences in their life, along with um, the birth of a child, uh, marriage, the death of a loved one, like really, mm -hmm. really monumental experiences. Yeah. Um, and that these are transformational experiences and, and show incredible aptitude for, for helping people deal with um, depression, with anxiety, with suicidal ideation, with deep, deep addictions um, that doctors had given up on pretty much. And, um, and I'm not saying this is some sort of miracle drug and everyone should be doing psychedelics. I'm, I'm going to contextualize this in a, in a philosophical way in just a second. Um, so, but the fact that people are having mystical experiences and is, 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 is verifiable empirically, right? Before extrapolating to anything metaphysical, let's just talk about what's happening in, in a scientific human realm. We, we're doing scans on people who are having mystical experiences so we know we can begin to map the, the neural activity, what's happening in the brain um, in those moments and begin to make correlations between what we understand from other neurological activity. Um, and what's most important, I think, in those studies um, by Roland Griffins and by um, Richard, um, what's the other fellow's name? It slips my mind at the moment. He, he put out a book recently called Sacred Knowledge, where he, where he shares a lot of this research, which is really great. Um, if, if his name has come back to me, if his name comes back to me, I will say it. Um, that within the, within the psychedelic experience, um, what they've identified based on the parameters set out by William James, the father of American psychology and pragmatism, what, what is actually doing, what is actually carrying the weight, the active ingredient in that experience is the mystical experience. 
Uh, and that's, there's a few parameters of how that's, what that's being determined. That's a sense of unity and bliss and timelessness and a sense of dissolution of boundaries, a sense of lust of self and ego. These are like the common features from a psychological perspective of what, what's happening in the mystical experience, which means that the, the psychedelic is only one avenue to get there. But if one has a mystical experience triggered by any of the thousand ways of getting there, then the potential for deep transformation and healing um, and, and being, becoming at peace with oneself, uh, a lot of people with terminal cancer facing their fear of death uh, is, is precipitated by this mystical experience. So there's something empirical happening here, something which we can um, observe and study scientifically, which we are. Uh, and I think we're only beginning to just do that. The question then is, what the hell is happening, right? How do we how do we give a pill to someone, or how do we precipitate an experience with you know a few days of meditation that is causing lifelong transformation, that is causing an experience which is entirely allowing people to reframe their perspective of self? And I think it's there that we need to turn to the philosophy, and we need to ask, what are the narratives that are shaping our everyday ordinary reality that are keeping us locked in our patterns of self-abuse, of addiction, of depression, of nihilism, and what is a reformulation, a retelling of our understanding of reality that may shift that perspective entirely, that when fully internalized, and whether that's done philosophically or experientially, that reformalizing our conception of self and reality has the ability to affect these changes that we're seeing being done empirically. And the reason I'm phrasing it that way is because this is what happens historically to move from science to history a little. The, we live in a very Christian world today, at least here in the West. The, before Christianity existed, right, uh, for the same amount of time that Christianity has existed today, so for 2,000 years, there were the Greco-Roman mystery religions, which, were, which is a sort of a catch-all term to include the, the, the mysteries of Ulysses and, and Dionysus, and, and those are the two big ones, but, but a whole bunch of other ones. Um, and what would happen is once a year, people would go on a pilgrimage, which is part of a transformative process, and we see the same theme being repeated in Islam, in the Hajj, in Judaism, in the, in the, Ali, in the ascent by foot to, to Jerusalem three times a year. They would go on a pilgrimage. Um, there, there's all kinds of speculation about exactly what happens on that. A very good video was just put out by my friend and colleague, Philip Holm, on his channel, Let's Talk Religion, um, where they would have, they weren't, we, we don't exactly know what happened because they weren't allowed to repeat what happened um, and if they did, they would be killed for it. So there was this sort of veil of secrecy that was intentional there. But in that experience, um, they somehow were moved from, from darkness to light. And in, in, their, in, the, in the descriptions, in the very scant descriptions of the fragments that we have. And one of the things that we know is that their, the, the sense, their fear of death um, was shed. Um, and they, sent, they participated somehow in immortality. They were able to experience a theophany, a, a revelation of the gods, and somehow participate or become united with the god that they experienced. Um, and the reason that I bring this up is because the people that went through that experience, which really was everyone who was anyone in ancient Greece, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, everyone did it, um, they were known as the initiates, the mystikoi, which is where we get the English word mysticism from. So the same thing, and there may have been psychedelics involved, and there may be music involved, it's not They've entirely done, like clear. archaeological research yeah. on the kalium that they use. The yes, yeah, yeah. Having DMT and other stuff in there. There, there, there's a bunch of interesting research which which yeah. 
I think is still inconclusive exactly what's going on. And I think it's not just one. I think there's a reductionism where it's like, oh, yes, the whole history of spirituality is all reducible to, to suicide. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think that's childish. But, 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 so, yeah, but certainly it, it plays a large part in history. But I think what's important here is that there is a practice that's been done in, through human culture of precipitating a radical change of consciousness, a change of conception of self. Um, and, that, I, and that experience, which radically alters us, which is nothing like our ordinary experience of duality and separation, right? And the anxiety and guilt and, and fear that, that comes with that. And that, that, it's that experience that gets encoded into religion. And it's that experience which is the pursuit of the divine, the pursuit of the divine unity. And so, so I think that there is, a, there is a psychological place to begin. There's a neurological place to begin. There's a chemical place to begin. There's a historical way of doing this. And then there's, then there's the, the philosophical. And basically what's happening philosophically is two arguments, essentially. An argument against the conception of selfhood that we ordinarily carry. And we see this being done from people as diverse as the Buddha, who argues for anatman, for the non-existence of self, that the self is not some sort of solid, tight object that makes decisions. And that, that's a very painful notion, to, which brings a lot of suffering, dukkha, in, in the Buddha's language. And as far as people like, like David Hume, who argue that the self is just simply a, a bundle of sensations, that there is nothing that we can put the finger mm -hmm. on the self. And the Kabbalists will argue that, that the true self is the yichida, is the soul, which is just part of this larger consciousness. And you see this argument being made today by the panpsychists. So that's one, sort of a deconstruction of self that's happening philosophically. And I think there's good philosophical reason to argue for that. Um, and, and you see that being played out today between people like Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris. And that's, that's a, a live debate today. David Chalmers, for example. And then there's the metaphysical debate. So what is, what, is the, what is the fundamental nature of reality? Do we live in a reality which is fundamentally made up of bits and objects and parts that have no um, real interaction with one another? They're just sort of billiard balls banging up against each other, um, which means that we live in a world which is fundamentally separate and alienated from each other and we can experience that psychologically. Or do we live in a world where things are somehow deeply interwoven and interconnected and interdependent to to the way that where they may be fundamentally one thing at the bottom of them. And that's a position in philosophy known as monism. And that's been argued by people like Spinoza, by people like Plotinus, by people like Nagarjuna in a, in a bit more of a negative formulation that the world is not dual. And up until modern contemporary philosophers, people like uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who argued against a conception of reality as separate objects, but rather as a deep, interpenetrated um, relational world where the base matter of reality is not is not objects but as relationships and as processes so I think that there are many ways of approaching mysticism uh, and and this is only like the scratching the surface there's, there's a lot more in all of those fields um, in, in in the mathematics in in the psychology in the philosophy in the this is really just a rache prakim as I'm as as it, as it would be and I think that investigating the confluence the, the intersection the synergy the synthesis between the science the mythology the, the theology the philosophy the metaphysics the ethics um, on these issues, I think, is really integral because because we seem to be you know, living in a world that's falling apart every day. I mean, if you spend a minute on Twitter, like it doesn't seem like there's much hope for humanity, the crises that we face, and it seems like we really need to get our act together. And it seems like the sense, a, a new narrative that can change people's perspectives of themselves and of reality is what's needed today. And it's needed, we need the poets, we need the philosophers, we need the scientists, we need the rabbis, we need the imams, the priests, we need the we need the dancers. We need the musicians to begin, or to continue to tell the story in a way that can move us into a state of reality, which ultimately will move us to a state which is which is not torn apart and seems like we're on the edge of, of falling into an abyss of chaos. 
unless it's magical <laughs> and so it seems like like the, the only way like i you're looking for a shared narrative that we're all participating in as humans like is this the new world order is this like, like you know like the economic world forum like there's like a like you see pe the people who seem to be actively pursuing it and especially the ones with influence and competence and money and power like i like the the, uh, the skepticism that i i think yeah. we all feel is founded and then you said somehow I where you went you said the bracha we say on 600,000 Jews and there's something about this in the diversity coming together as a whole I'm, just, I'm trying to figure out my question like it's a uh, like we have like it seems like okay I'm gonna rewind a little bit like what maybe ask a different question what is why does Judy like what does it mean that Judaism is true like and what, what, why like in and we're correct yeah like and like, if we look at like okay so it's not the specific ideas that necessarily we're coming up with it almost seems like the way the Raman put it it's our mecha it's our mechanism our process of of per, like the our path of truth it's not the truth that we're looking for it's a derech ha'emes it's a derech haim. it's yeah. a derech hayashar it's a it's a, a like and similarly like, what's a derech it's like a it's like whether it's science right which has its rules in means of testing and, and verifying and veracity or checks and balances and peer review like all of these mm -hmm. mechanisms that seem to allow us to discern what's corrupt what's not corrupt because it almost seems to be that's that's the always a problem if every if we're just seeking unity every guy who's done psychedelics everybody who's run an ashram right. everybody right. like and everybody who's a pope and a, and a catholic and a buddhist every oh it's all truth it's all ms it's all one let's just accept everybody and all paths are equal and it seems to me like what judaism offers is a torah shabbat which is something that's always evolving and living and breathing which actively discriminates and accepts and sometimes discriminates things that shouldn't have been discriminated against maybe arguably like the rambam or accepts things like shabbat tzvi which were detrimental that if we're going to attach ourselves to any particular vision of truth or any particular person's conception of ms like that's where we fall and it's it's the the only way to protect or protect ourselves is to create systems of like listening testing and questioning like all the time and just it's obviously we're treading in waters that are <laughs> deeper than we could possibly imagine um it's where we like to be. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's the only place to be. There's like a, just like a riff on that. Have you listened to any of Joe, Joey Rosenfeld's lecture series at all? Yeah. So like that, that right, or his, he had a series on the uh, first Mishnah and Brachos. Um, the Into the Darkness, I think is what he titled it, which is what Tarsh Pet is. And it's how in like the analogy of darkness, it's in the darkness that... that all like the important things are to be found right like that's why we, and we just need tools yeah essentially which is a light a torch yes. to go into the darkness yes. with we don't want to go in by ourselves maybe yes. an advisor or a flashlight whatever we whatever our conceptual tool is we we're looking into the darkness and 
what he said to our Shabbat Peh is, is right like the first mission in Brachos is on when you're allowed to say Kriyashma like and at, it's between this hour of night and this hour of night and when are you able to announce the oneness of God mm-hmm. during the dark mm-hmm. the dark yes. era and, yes. and that's and like Tarshabal Peh is our mechanism our, uh, that of lighting up the darkness um, I think there is a mechanism at play I think there is a mechanism but, I, but I, there was a few things that you brought up there. The first was like that it, it may sound a bit nefarious, like some sort of new world order, some sort of global narrative. I, I, don't, I don't think it's nefarious. I think it's the message of Judaism through the ages. I think when the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 says that there will come a day where no man, no person shall need to teach their brother, know the Lord, for they shall... For they shall, for they shall all know me uh, and then the prophet Hosea says that a day will a day is coming where um, the knowledge of God will cover the the right. face of the earth like the like the waters cover the sea uh, which is how Maimonides ends his mission Torah famously yeah, yeah. and that's the end of existence that's our aim that's our so so what that the way I understand that means what does it mean that we that no one needs to teach about God because they will because they'll all know me what that means as far as I understand what God means for for the prophets and for Maimonides and for the mystics, is the unity of being. And when people, when everyone, when it's so obvious that we live in a world which is one whole organism, which every single thing that happens affects one another, and that is the divine expression in the manifest unity that we live in, then you don't need to teach someone because it's like it's like it's like the fish in water, right? That they all know they're surrounded by water. So I don't think it's nefarious at all. I think it is the vision of, of Judaism. I think it's the vision of Judaism from Jeremiah through the Rambam into the Hasidic masters and that's and that's what they're striving for and, and I don't think that they're doing that alone if we were doing that alone that would be terribly lonely and I don't know how far we would get but we're doing it alongside what I see as our brothers and sisters in in every tradition around the world in the finest representations of it uh, in the in the Sufis and the Christian mystics in the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Taoists in the Native American traditions all calling for that new song for, for the unity of existence and, and I don't think it's, I, I, I'm not so in touch with, with Vogue politics and, and economics, but, but, um, but if, it's, if, if there's people that are preaching for, uh, for, for oppression and for, um, for further segregation and for, for, for economic um, disadvantagement, and then, then clearly that's not the song. The prophet is, is calling for justice and is calling for krasim jurer ba'aretz, that the prophet say that, that righteousness will flow like 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 rivers, right? This is this is the day that we that we aspire to. Well, that's the age we live in now, where everybody's righteous and a social justice warrior. Well, righteousness doesn't mean righteousness in that I'm better than you. I'm yeah. self-righteous. <laughs> it means it means that I'm righteous in the way that God is righteous, that I'm kind, that I'm humble, that I'm just. That's what Roman writes in, in the last parak of 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 um, quoting Yirmiyo, that um, the prophet Jeremiah again, that. Um, that, that the pinnacle of, of mankind is, and this is a spoiler to anyone who's in the middle of watching the series, the pinnacle of mankind is to, is to know God for I, says God, that God desires in, in, in chesed, in loving kindness, in tzedek, in, in justice, and in staka. In, in, in righteousness and charity and, and, and that's 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 the righteousness yeah but I'm you threw about. everything in there because chesed and mishpat seem to be 
well, at odds on one level of well, analysis. I, I, didn't right? throw, I didn't throw everything in there. No, Jeremiah, yeah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah threw everything in there. And the reason why Jeremiah <laughs> throws that all in there is because that, that, those are the attributes of God. And that is the God which we are taught to, to aspire and to imitate. It's a God who, who, who visits the sick, who, who buries the dead, and who clothes, who clothes the naked. And, and he true, destroys the wicked. Yes, and true, but true justice and true kindness aren't mutually exclusive. In the, the Kabbalists refer to the two poles as chesed and gvura, mm-hmm. but they meet together in teferets. They meet in, in what's translated as beauty, because beauty is when we have a harmony of the two. And, and in God, those opposites, as we were speaking, can be reconciled. And true mercy and true justice uh, are not two different things. Um, maybe I'll, I'll share a tidbit on that, and you can decide whether you want to keep it or not. Uh, and then, I'll, then it will talk to the question of well, what's the mechanism of how do we determine truth. Um, in terms of reconciling those, those two sides of things. During the Great Depression, uh, this is my go-to uh, parable, my go-to mashal for, for Tiferet. Um, and I think it, it brings out this point quite, quite, quite nicely. Um, during the Great Depression, there was, uh, people were starving. It was a terrible time. Um, and there was a woman who was caught shoplifting. She, she, she stole bread from the local bakery. Um, and she was brought in, she was apprehended by the, by the owner and police were called and she was brought into, 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 into court. And, um, and the judge has in front of him the baker and the woman. And he, he asked the woman, why did you steal bread? He says, I have two, st- I have two starving children at home. They're, if I don't feed them, they'll die. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's a pretty good reason to steal bread, right? But then if, if, he lets it, if he lets it go, then we've created an anarchy. And the baker won't be able to feed his kids at the end of the day if everyone's just stealing bread from him. Uh, we'll have lawlessness and chaos. Um, so what do you do? So Chesed says, you let the woman walk. She's feeding her starving children, of course. What kind of question is that? Gvura says, so just, so compassion says, says that. And Gvura, justice says, no, there's, there's law and order. Like, you can't just let people steal. What the judge does is the judge finds in a moment of, and it takes genius to do this. He finds, he finds the balance between the two. He finds, he finds the, the, the true tzedek, the true justice. Um, which is, there were, there were a bunch of people in the courtroom that were, uh, that were sort of spectators on the court case. And uh, the woman had stolen, let's say, the equivalent of like $3 of bread. He fined everyone in the room 20 cents. He fined them for living in a city where a single mother has to steal to feed her children. How do you live in such a city? How do you not take care of your neighbor? He fined them all. And with that money, he paid the baker and, he, and, and there was restitution. That's, that's called Tiferes. That's, that's where, that's, it, in moments of genius, we can see how we can transcend the dichotomy. Uh, maybe a cuter version of this, this I, I came across this recently. There's a grandfather who walks into his daughter's home and, uh, to visit his grandchild and daughter. And, uh, and the grandchild is in this like, little playpen cage, and he's crying. He wants to leave. And, and the grandfather goes to take the child out. And, uh, and the, mother, this, the, the mother of the child, the, the daughter of the grandfather, says, no, 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 he's... He's, he was misbehaving, he's, he's, uh, he's in naughty time, he's not allowed to leave the cage. Um, and the grandfather, it's not his child, he has to respect his daughter's parenting and autonomy, but it's his grandchild crying. Mm-hmm. What is he, a heartless monster who's going to let his grandchild cry, but he can't take the child out, what does he do? What he does is he climbs into the cage and he sits in, and plays with the child inside. So he's able to both you know, have compassion for the child and also have justice and respect the mother's. So there, there are ways of finding... Of finding in moments of, of genius of finding, of finding that balance, and that's often what we're called to do in life. In terms of what mechanisms we have, what, what, what are the mechanisms for, for ascertaining the truth here? Like, what is the equivalent of, of the scientific method or, or, or peer review in, in scholarship? 
uh, and how do we know that like not every every guru and every uh, person you know selling snake oil is, is someone to listen to I think that um, I think that we have to know what our axioms are right what is it what what are the things that we're striving for which we will not compromise on um, and we see that Abraham has his axiom Abraham's axiom is the unity of God which is why when as a child he's living his father by profession according to the Midrash is, a, is an idol maker and he Abraham has an axiom that he discovered through according to the Midrash and according to Maimonides through his own rational inquiry right not through revelation God only speaks to him after he comes to acknowledge the the truth of God through his own speculation through his own through his own scientific or philosophical process and he comes to his axioms, he comes to the axiom that 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 God is one and there is only God and there's nothing but God and therefore the idols in his father's store are lies and he's swindling people from their hard-earned money, promising them with, with, uh, with salvation and restitution, which they cannot have. And what he does is he takes his hammer and he smashes those lies. He breaks them in the face of his axiom. What is our axiom in the face of which we will smash the idols that we hold and the idols of our, of our day and age and every day that we're in? And I think that our axiom, at least for myself and I think for anyone that's steeped in Judaism and in... in particularly from, from the perspective of the mystics or, or in any mystical tradition, the axiom is that there's only one thing that exists and that is God, and that God is united, and therefore everything is one in God's unity. And you can call it God, you can call it something else, doesn't really matter. With, and once we have that axiom, and, and we know that that axiom leads to certain, to certain, to certain testable outcomes, right? They're, they're, they're predictors of that axiom. The axiom is if you really believe that and embody that, you'll act with kindness because, because you're treating everything as if, it, as if it's one with you, as if it's God. You'll act with compassion. You'll have equanimity. You'll be able to, to hold balance and, and be present with people. These are, these are the, the fruits of that position. And this is something that William James speaks about in his brilliant, brilliant book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. What are the ethical outcomes? What, what are the psychological outcomes? Buddha writes that, that um, when, when I began to meditate, I didn't gain anything, but I lost things. I lost guilt, I lost anxiety, I lost fear, I lost jealousy. These are the actionable outcomes of our metaphysical axioms. When we have those axioms, that doesn't allow for idolatry. Idolatry means philosophically, means economically, means socially, means interpersonally. When we have our axiom, then we can see anything that's being presented. Here, you have, you have a foreign system. Um, let us, what is it, what, what claim is it making about the nature of reality? Is it claiming that nature is fundamentally one and united right with language of god or otherwise and does that lead to kindness and to justice then that is part of truth and and the talmud says very clearly that whoever gives you the truth it doesn't matter where it's coming from it's the truth right what it says or the ramam says it no it's it's before i think it's, uh, I, think it's, it's I think it's maybe even a mishnah I think I think it's maybe even. Um, I always quoted the Rambam as "Kibbutzamis Mimashamra." It's uh, it's a problem that we. That I was going to uh, ask you, what do you think the Rambam meant by "Kibbutzamis Mimashamra"? I, I think that, I think, I think, I think, it's, I think it's, that's what he means, and I think I think that he does that thoroughly. Um, Which the can I throw in? That means also whenever you make a statement like that, it says reject the, the reject falsehood. Yes, and absolutely. He says it has to be true as Abs- well. Absolutely. Which means we like our. I, to me, I guess that's where like it's. I guess maybe when I was like 20, I was more of like this, much more skeptical than I, when I was younger, I was really skeptical. And then I graduated, like I finally, I was, I was just skeptical. I wasn't offering, like, and it was, 
when I was like, yeah, 12, 13, 14, right? I was, I was very skeptical, right? I was, I was asking questions that pissed way too many people off. And most people aren't capable of responding to me or saying, I don't know. Yeah. And like, right. It was more like, okay, for my dad, I'd get like, oh, I hear your question. I've heard the question before. Here's the answer yeah. to the question. Yeah. Like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. You didn't hear my question. Right. Like there's a certain listening, but this, I thought uh, to me, it's, it's the, our, our, I feel like our chesed isn't where we're lacking. It's, it's in our ability to, to do din, to be discerning yeah. and discriminatory yes. that, that that's where our skill set is lacking. Cause now like, right. And that's what the world's suffering from now. We, oh, I can't just trust anybody. My media sources, I can't trust my gurus. I can't trust yeah. like, and now we're moving from, we don't want trust. We want verifiability, which is Bitcoin and, and right, which allows for it to be verified. And I don't need trust. Like yes. why, if you could eliminate trust from a relationship yeah. by making it yeah. co contractual, right? Like what's a marriage, right? Like to a certain degree, like here's my written contractual responsibilities to you, my wife. Yeah. And this is what I have to provide. Like we don't, we don't just leave things to trust. We yes. create mechanisms of security and stability. But like you said, idol worship, it's to me like what what what, it, what was Avram's biggest what was the biggest what was the issue with the Vodazara with idolatry is it is it it fills in a blank that shouldn't have been filled and you should have kept seeking right yeah. you should have kept yes. seeking you should keep seeking and when like I don't know, and to throw in Han, Hanuk's story darkness and how it was the darkest of all the gullus but it wasn't the one it was it was it was when the Greeks in was like there's the medrash that says Yavan is Tzion without the Tzaddik, mm. right? And Tzaddik is Yosef at Tzaddik, mm. um, right? There's like who was who embodied all, all, all these attributes of Yavan, right? Beauty and yes. aestheticism, yes. and 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 he was the shore, right? The yes. ox, the who like and and then what what came out of Yosef ended up being the golden calf, yeah. right? Like you see all these like negative consequences of this. Yosef Tzaddik approach, which is I'm going to be in the world. I'm going to right. This is really what we're, this discussion that the world is happening is like the discussion between Yosef and his brothers, right? Am I going to be in the world and taking and incorporating its wisdom and its visions into into the grander vision, or am I I have something that is extremely valuable and I'm going to do whatever I can to protect it at all costs and save it, right? That's the Yehuda approach, right? Mm -hmm. What was the defining attribute of Yehuda? It says Kafalba Vodazara, right? He, his denial of a Vodazara, right? This rejection of a Vodazara. Right now, a Vodazara, it seems like more accessible and more persuasive than it's ever been in history. Like, but at the same time, I can't, I don't trust anything anymore. So I'm, I'm not trusting the Vodazara and I'm not trusting the Torah and I'm not trusting truth. So we're just, we're, like I, I right now, it seems like this is the darkest point in history where so, there is no certainty. And for me, I love it because there's no reason for you to have had certainty mm -hmm. ever, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain lack of certainty and need to pursue and need to find, which I love that you're doing, that it's that it's anybody who says they know the truth and they have the answer, that's the person I'm, I'm afraid of. It's the people who like are just asking questions that and better and better questions and I think Nathan Cordozo or Rabbi Nathan uh, that's his mm -hmm, name mm -hmm. Nathan Lopez Cordozo or whatever his full name is he has that book on his most recent book he put out was like like rebellion and religion or something along nice. those lines and he points out like that the 
any every answer is a form of a death right like it ends the road yes. the, the, our aim is better and better questions yes. right? so what i see that the, to me the unity i'm seeking is i'm looking at all the languages of the world so to speak not just english or hebrew or chinese i'm looking at the language of philosophy of science of culture of history of and using those languages to to refine and f beautify that which I think I'm attached to, right? Because like I, I get, always get stuck because like, oh, I'm a Jew, right? Like, and I believe that this is MS somehow, and I think I know it, and like I'm, I'm like, on one hand, like I know I need to be open because if I'm closed and dogmatic, that's that's like the bit, that's the antithesis of truth of the mechanism of truth. Yeah. But then if you're open, you're subject to corruption, poisoning, and and it's always like what role, like there's we all play different roles, each different face. There's the artist who's trying to find synthesis, there's the philosopher who's trying to discriminate, and and then there's the politician who's creating division. In, and it's like almost like I like the ones who are creating division and are cynical and skeptical, even though they're to like the most toxic and they might stress me out the most. Like I'm just... Tr is, I don't even know where I started this line of thought right <laughs> at this point, but yeah, I'm like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of like a, like I'm a, I'm afraid of just accepting everything, but then I don't trust myself to be able to discriminate against yeah. what's, yeah. what's real yeah. and what's not real. Cause I like one thing I gained from psychedelics is which is kind of like my introduction to existentialism and radical subjectivism. And I have a really awesome take on that I came up with. I think I came up with, maybe I probably didn't. I just stole it from a different bunch of different sources <laughs> and came up with something on like, we're both like, here's objectivity. Like the Ramam's like, yeah. here's objectivity. We're yeah. trying to like know the outside world around us, right? And like it's yeah. objectivity. Yeah. And yeah. You're, I don't care about your feelings yeah. and your subjectivity. Yeah. That's, like I, to the degree of which your subjectivity is objective is to the degree of which you are interacting with God, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and I, that was like the biggest shift in my life. Like that there's, and then now I'm switched on this other end, like of Sartre and, and Nachman philosophy, like of just like, I have nothing other than my perspective, yeah. right? I can't have yeah. anything other than my yeah. perspective and my conception of self, like, I can't, I can never be not selfish, but I can expand my conception of self. Like, like, who do I include? What do I include in my, in my ego boundaries as opposed to the Buddhist, which is get rid of the ego boundaries. Yes. And okay, fuck, I'm just lost <laughs> at this point. I, 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 I hear, I hear a couple different themes there. Okay. Yeah. Help me. Um, th there's, you know, we, there's this, uh, there's this line from the great song that the Jews sang when they left or when they were crossing through the sea that split for them when they left Egypt. Uh, Az Yashir. Uh, Az Yashir, which is phrased in future tense that then Moses will sing, which the rabbis, which Chazal read as as prefiguring the resurrection when they will again sing this song. So it's a song which is relevant and ever relevant, right? The, uh, we, are, we are, as many refer to it as as the generation of, of, of the desert, right? That's what many of the masses have called us, the, uh, the, generation, the generation of Moses. And over there, which means that there's lessons, particular less, unique lessons from that generation for us today. One of the things in that song is this great line. It's this biblical parallelism is a technical term where there's like this poetic form where the same thing is repeated in two different ways, um, which is Zeh 
A. Lee Van Veyho, Elihei Avivar Mimeno. And I apologize if you've heard this drush already because okay. it's a fairly it's a fairly used every, one. Every time I hear it, I'll hear something different. Good. Right? Um, which is which in English means this is my God, uh, and I will glorify him and this is my god and i will exalt him basically it's this this form of biblical poetry but because we don't read anything in the bible at face value and any extra syllable or or consonant we we, we scrutinize so so this is it, yeah even even a crown exactly even just a um chup a, a chup chick <laughs> a uh, there's a technical term for those things they're called um um, anyhow, whatever the technical term is. So, what is this double phrase? What's what's going on here? Um, so, the interpreters read it as that there's two different gods here. And when I say two different gods, I mean two different relationships with God. Some people get confused by Maimonides' class because I thought they thought I meant that Maimonides actually had two different gods, I mean, two different conceptions or relationships to God. Um, one is Ze'eli, this is my God. Van Veho. And the other one is that's God A, and then God B is Elihe Avivarimeno, the God of my father, and I will exalt him. Uh, the, the, the language there is in the masculine. Um, and there's a very keen observation here, which I think may have some truth like for us in this moment, um, and may I think respond to some of the th themes that you're bringing up, which is that there's, there's a God, there's a truth that we inherit. From, from previous ages, from these are the, these are the truisms, and they could be the religious. This is literally the God of our Father that, that we were taught as children. Um, and that God we have to hold in high esteem. We cannot throw out all of the past and then start afresh like Descartes did. If we did that in every generation, we'd be in a very dark place. Um, we have to, but those gods are exalted. They're not here with us. They're, they're, they're our parents' God. They're, they're somewhere in the, those truths are somewhere in the past. And then there's a new truth that we have to discover in every generation. And that's Ze'eli. This is my God. This is my axiom. This is my truth. That I, this is what I'm willing to die on the altar for. And that God is, un, is Anvehu, which grammatically, according to this interpretation, is broken up of two Hebrew words of Anivahu. I and thou, me and him. There's an intimate relationship there. It's present. It's in my life. It's my axiom, so I live with it when I wake up, and I live with it when I go to sleep, and I live with it when I eat, and when I sleep, and when I talk. That's, that's my God. And it may not be as firm and as exalted and as lofty and as glory as the God of my Father, but I, but, but I cannot live just on the God of my Father. I cannot live on the truths of the past, and I can't just live on my own truths, right? Because both of those, because both of those truths are there. The gods of the past are somehow dead to me, right? The death of God that Nietzsche pronounced. And then again, if all I have is my subjective truth, then... Today I'm a, identify as a as a chicken, and tomorrow I I good is bad and bad is good, and, and there's no, there's nothing that keeps any semblance of reality. And I think that being in the darkness means that we're able to hold on to both of those truths and to both of those gods and both of those conceptions of reality. And there's the truth that we inherit, and that truth constantly needs to be reworked and constantly needs to be refined. And that is that's the truth that I come to. That's my God, Andy, with whom yeah. I'm intimate. There's this notion that the which, I, which is really beautiful, that the, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the truth of the people of Israel, the Torah, and it's from where God spoke through the cherubs to Moses, that no one could touch that. No one was allowed to touch the Ark. If you, if you touch it, you died. No one was allowed even into the room where the Holies of Holies were. Mm -hmm. It was kept besides for the high priest 
once a year for all of Israel. And if he went in, and if for a second he had the wrong contemplation, he would, he would die. And yet, the Bible prescribes that that, that, the, that that truth embodied in the physical object of the Ark of the Covenant has to be on poles but that the badim, the poles of the iron, aren't allowed to be taken out, even when it sits right. for 250 years in one spot, because that truth always has to be able to move on a, on a, on a dime. If if our truth is 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 static, then it's then it it's it's cubs and it's 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 dust and cobwebs. That paradox of the ark of the covenant, from where God speaks, where truth, the bastion of our truth, which is untouchable and immutable, it is it is solid gold, literally, has to be also able to be moving in a second. I think that's what's what's happening. The poles of the iron today are is the capacity to 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 open conversation about our deepest truths, to have to be to be podcasting, to be sharing, to be we're moving the truth forward and we're making that into relationship of it's Zegli, it's this is now my God. And we don't abandon this the sacrality. We don't we don't open the the curtain of the Kodesh Kadashim just to let everyone gaze at, at the Ark of the Covenant. But we, but we're never allowed to take those poles out. They can't, for a moment, be 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 stagnated, or else the truth is dead. I think I think both of them have to be ever present. And they, and like even if they they, there is no other way for like like both the the Eli the what was this the Eli van Veu the Hail Aviv the Hail Aviv um like there there are like there is right like when I say for me I think about that concept when I'm davening Shmonesra and it says uh, right like okay wasn't it the same God right. were there the different gods right. so there is that degree like the one that they were seeking to know yes. right like that's the God that I'm referring to when the Rambam opens up the Mishnah Torah he doesn't say God he says the Matzai Rishon yes. right like primal existence whatever we're going to call it like there's there is there is this shared objective reality that as radically inescapably subjective human beings we are like i want a relationship with that god so my talk about the the covenant what was in there was the broken luchos correct yes and so my my both both the broken and the full right broken and the full and so it says right the 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 broken ones right those were a a, a bria chadasha right god created a stone that wasn't part of that wasn't the from the original Evan Shasia, but for all intents and purposes, it is the Evan Shasia. But because uh, fundamentally the same, it's that which is created directly by God, as opposed to being part of an evolutionary process. He, so he created it, and then he carved with his fingers, whatever that means, into the tablets. And one of the miracles, right, is that on both sides, yes. it, you were able to, no matter which way you looked at it, it was still legible, right? Yes. Which would it would have been backwards, yes. and um, and. So for me, what that was, was there was, it's almost like the world was fundamentally a different place, right? It says when like, we died, we, there was a gila shechina. At like, Mount Sinai. At Mount yes. Sinai, right? With, yes. with, in this presence. And so Moshe comes down and right, he has a stone that no matter which way you look at it, like we see the same thing. And speaks the truth from all sides. Yeah, from all sides, and and the truth, the objective truth, is recognizable from all subjective right. perspectives. Right. That okay. So then we have our chetego, the golden calf, where we're dancing around our own projections. Mm-hmm. Is the way I really mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. That's what caused them to drop it mm-hmm. when we were wor- like not the fact that we had our own projections. We always will. Why are you getting upset at them, God? Right. That's the dialogue. Then he comes down. And he sees them dancing around it and worshiping it. Deified then, there. And nice. this, yeah, and then they dropped it. 
and and he dropped it it shatters he goes back up and then what does the torah say about the next bracket it was, it was written on it that which had been written before yeah but didn't have any of these miracles right um and so that's kind of the world we live in now is where the original vessel was the initial tablet was shattered and now there's this it's the same thing it's the same object there is still a stone there is still an objective reality but no matter which way we look at it it's going to look different hmm. like that's what was introduced with subjectivity and that's why the response to that is instead of pel pel daperbo right which we had access to mm-hmm. we want you to speak moshe and then okay torah shabal pel was an, an outgrowth of Correct. of us needing to have a means of communicating with god but not directly Correct. and that goes into jerry rosenfeld's series on like this it's the it's it's in the darkness it's in it's in that we're essentially co- the is collecting the pieces yes but there will become this world where we where the those tablets are back where no we will surely we will observe reality and we'll and we'll see it in a shared way like because we all have god i i think of god and you think of god and we're both thinking of the same god but no we're not right there is absolutely there's overlap between my conception of god and purpose and how i see it and how i understand it and yours but it's not the same it can't be the same i'm subjective you're subjective and to me that was like the biggest gift hashem ever gave us was subjectivity and Adam Marishon made that choice. Like, I'm like, there's just right and wrong here, right? The existence of right and wrong didn't wasn't knowledge. What switches is the knowledge of tov and ra, which the way I understood is is tov and ra are almost subjective hmm. uh, metrics hmm. as, as opposed to right and wrong, hmm. which is like, okay, this is the world is. I see this the way. This is how I should act, right? There's a gilu shchina um, where I don't Hashem shchina is mamalako it's kavodo, right? Like where. Like, it just is. I don't need to be taught it. I just, this is the world I live in. Adam rejects that. Like, because it doesn't allow for him to be of significance and yes. him to, or at least the way he saw it, it didn't allow him to be contribute and him to participate. And then you have Am Yisrael making that exact same choice with uh, Mount Sinai. We, we, need, we need some Hester Panem. We need a little bit of right. degree of right. separation. And then going into Eretz Yisrael, the same exact thing happens. And my, my understanding of Tishba, I made a post about it, was just this like however much right like with with the allowance of me to be unique and subjective and all of the things that come along with it death chaos darkness they allow for newness every single yes. time i look at something and it's i read the same the same four chapters of Eicha every single year but every single year i read it due to the, my subjective location and time and place and mindset and all of those things a whole new Torah comes out of yes. it. A whole new vision comes yes. out of it, and that is this cycle. And we keep on rejecting Gilu Shechina. Like we don't want it, right? Every single time we've had it, where there was unity of God, we haven't. Like we've rejected it. So it's almost like, as it still holds true to me to degree now. But I was twelve, and they oh Mashiach's gonna come. There's after. I'm like, why would I want Mashiach? Like I'm not gonna be interested in girls. I'm not gonna go to the movies. I'm not gonna enjoy like care about good food. Like. These are all things I love and enjoy yes. very much. I don't want this yes. messianic era. Yes. And, and there's like something like that. So for me, that subjectivism, which is something I'm like, how do I escape my subjectivism? Like, and it's like, no, it's in my subjectivity. Yes. Like attempting to pursue objectivity and attempting to view reality or truth, MS, that which stands on its own. Like that, like that is what we're doing. And all this like dogmatic like here's the truth here's the truth here's the truth that you get and 
don't know, my, like with Chabad, my problem is, is like, however, even if it's the greatest philosophy ever written, as soon as you become attached to one and impervious to criticism from outside, yeah. you end, your end is entropy and end, right. the end of entropy is chaos. Right, it's no longer like, philosophy, it's, it's no, dogma. It's just dogma yeah. and that's not yeah. the derech of Hashem and that's yeah. not the derech of Avram and we get lost. And I think that's what we're all afraid, like that's what we're afraid of with like, all these great figures is we know how capable people are to being just stupid and following, right? Because yeah. we all just want a leader. We don't, I don't want to think, I don't want to make choices. Uh, I would just like, what should I do with my life? Rebbe, please tell me, tell give me the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think, so for me, this podcast, Thinking Aloud, right? Which is all this is, or we're just thinking right. aloud together. Right. Both where thinking is permissible and mistakes are permissible, meaning that play on the sound of the word and or thinking aloud is, is, I, I like, I'd, I guess I'd like to, I don't want to offer answers. I want, I would like skepticism, but then I'd also like myself to be, <laughs> to be at the same time, like, like when you have the, the great philosophers tell you about the, the, the meaninglessness and the nothingness of the world, but then somehow you look at them and they're still standing there yes. and they're happy and, yeah. and like, that's the most reassuring thing in the yes. world. Those people who dive into the chaos and they know nothing but somehow they're still standing and they have a smile on their face or they don't like that's like that's who I would like to be somebody who's capable of jumping into the darkness and somehow not getting lost um, or getting lost and then finding my way back out the darkness the darkness in the end of days according to the prophets and the Kabbalists shines brighter than light this idea there we go there's this idea that um, that's that the the light of, of night will be brighter than the light of day this, there's a very rich theme that, that God cloaks God's self. Um, at times, the verse says with light, but then other times it says with darkness. God wraps God's self in, in, in darkness, and in darkness that's illuminate, like illuminates. But I think I think this is really the great paradox of Judaism, um, and and I think I think the the richness that we have in this conversation is to borrow on three thousand years of cultural discourse and metaphors and imagery and symbolism to 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 verbalize our own quest into the darkness, right? And I, something that came to me while you were saying something that kind of just like jumped out at me was the very very last mitzvah in the Torah uh, so there's everyone knows there are 613 commandments in the Torah the Taryag mitzvot um, so the very first one is for Adam and Eve to procreate Pururvo. the very last one um, is in the end of the book of Devarim where Moses tells the people to, that each person has responsibility, as it's, as the commandment is, is learned out by the rabbis, to write for themselves this song, which is the Torah, um, and with it to teach the people of Israel. So there's a mitzvah incumbent on every single Jew, um, technically a Jewish male, because it's a time-bound mitzvah and the technicalities of that, but in theory every Jew, uh, to write for themselves a Sefer Torah from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Um, how many people actually do that is, is, is not so many. I've written a letter and you get somehow... Exactly, get, uh... exactly. So that's the idea. So we, we to, to partake in the mitzvah, we buy a letter or we write a letter. There's a big campaign made by Lubavitcher Rabbah of, of Oispa Sefer Torah to have a letter in the Torah. And part of the beauty of that is, is that based on another measure that every single Jew themselves is a letter in the collective Sefer Torah, there's a symbolic 613 letters in the Torah. Technically not, but symbolically yes which goes back to that number we mentioned earlier, the 613 sort of archetypal souls, uh, that, that every single Jew is a letter in the Torah, which, which is so beautiful because if we, we all know that if a single letter is missing in the Torah, the entire Torah is, is, is 
just invalid and is and is is useless. Which so means the made sure we pay attention to is every single every single Jew. Which means yeah. that if your subjectivity, if your letter is not there in the text in the grand narrative, the Torah is is a is a is a is a is a vain text. It becomes the, the most holy sacred object when your subjectivity is there, when mine is there, when and everyone is there. That's when it becomes the divine. That's that's the six hundred thirteen faces in the mm -hmm. text. But part of this idea is that every single person has to write their own Torah as well, which means that there is the Torah, and and we're not allowed to write our own made up Torah. We can't right. we can't write Jack and Jill, you know, um, Humpty Dumpty. Like we have to write Barishas Barley Him as Shmaya Sarat Tvarat Say So So Vayvachesha Chaplitaim Bruch. We have to write the Torah. It has to be written from another Sefer Torah. That's right. Too. That that, go, that connects us back to yeah. Zayili to the to the God to the truths of the past. But but no two Torahs are going to be written the same, right? right? No, no one has the same style. No one has the same calligraphy. No one has the same. No one has the same energy, the same intention, the same passion, the same the the, the cloth, the the hide, the parchment will be different. The ink will be different. The, the the sweat that you drop onto the text and smudge with the letters, your pain and your sorrow and your hopes, your Torah will be fundamentally different. And no two Torahs are the same. And the beauty of an altar, you pick up an altar and you see what it went through. What did, what did it? What did this Torah scroll see? What did it? And, and, we, and we live with those texts, right? We dance with them, we cry with them, we, we bring them out on, on our happiest days, and, we, and we, we, we leave them barren on our saddest days. So there's this, there's this obligation to write the Torah and this duality of the Torah. There's, there's one person in the Jewish population who has a double obligation to write two Torahs. That's the king. The king. Or he has, he has one that he has with him at all times, exactly. wrapped around him. And... Exactly. One that goes with him at all times, that goes out to war with him particularly. It's the war scroll, mm -hmm. and one which stays in the palace. Uh, and again, we have this beautiful duality. There's the palace Torah. There's the Torah of which is pristine, which doesn't get touched, which stays in the treasure house, which is truth for generations, which is the Aaron Kodesh, which no one touches, which is Ze'eli, which is the bedrock of our, of our knowledge. But then there's the war Torah. We go to war every day. Every day is a battle. And we take our Torah with us. And yes, it gets damaged. It gets chuffed and it gets smudged and it gets stolen. The Ark itself gets stolen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in, that, in the famous biblical narrative. But... But those two Torahs have to coexist, and one we're not a king with that, with just one, because if we have just one, right, again, that, then we're, we're stagnant, we're, we're boring, unevolved, God, God is dead, if, if, if it's not able to move. So, and I, so I think the obligation is upon us, right, and it's, I think it's precise that the Torah calls it a, a song. King David, according to Chazal, is punished for calling Torah a song in the book of Psalms. But over here, Moses and God calls it a song because... Because the vision is at the end of days, there will be a new song, right? There will be a shir chadash. There will be a Torah chadash of says says God. And I think that it's upon us in every generation that has aspirations for messianism, for redemption, for, for beauty and for kindness, is to, to articulate that Torah. And the question is, what is, what is that living Torah? What is the water that we, that we create in every generation? What is that song that we're going to sing? And I think it has to be a song of unity. I think it has to be a song... And it has to be someone which is discerning. It can't write if you just write nonsense in your Torah, even even a single letter. It has to be it has to be exacting. It has to be demanding. It has to be precise. It has to be rigorous. It has to be scientific. Um, but if we don't do that, then 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 we're done for. Absolutely. Just yeah, that, that guy. That archetypal argument between Yehuda. And Yosef, that seems to be a play. Like when we were in Gullus, right, which is where we are, but like there was a certain 
we just need to protect ourselves. Right? There's a certain like, let's stay low. Jews like our like we're just we're behind the scenes. We'll manage your money. We'll uh, I'll I'll try to keep my mysticism under wraps. Like I'll 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 engage in your Islamic philosophy and I'll and I'll like like we'll we'll just like protect like and and we'll and we'll criticize the Sabbateans and we'll criticize the Karaites and we have to protect that which is ours and most dear to us. It's the uh, like we all we had is the Torah in, in that, that we had to keep locked away the king's Torah in the safe and almost like prophetic the fact that like Israel is called Israel, and you look at the difference between Israel and Yehuda in the, in, in the books of uh, of the of the, uh, the Torah, like one is Yehuda Yisrael, like the Israel the David Melech narrative is 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 national identity is this expansion we are. I stand for something mm-hmm. as opposed to what we were, which is I stand against other yes. things. And so now we're in this like, okay, so obviously I have a million and one criticisms of the state of Israel and its government and my, I was disillusioned over, over COVID to realize like I was all in love and enamored and all of a sudden COVID disillusioned me from like, like it's very much a man-made process, but this, like we have this opportunity to be, like I think I'm thank God for all the Haredim and thank God for all the people who are still blocked off and keeping it safe because yeah. it allows for me to go out and yes. screw up. Like yes, it's a yes. kind of uh, like yes. thank you for doing yes. you, and I'm gonna go and I'll hopefully not be a kofer and I'll and yes. I'll get into heaven or whatever. Yes. But like <laughs> and I'll be I'll, I'll be part of the of the narrative as opposed to what's forgotten in the narrative, right? Because a lot of what has been written has been forgotten right that's one of the mechanisms of of it's like truth tends to last right as in falsehood tends to disappear mm-hmm. uh so that's like yeah we all we're all like we're we have such a luxury and then we can have this conversation and people could listen to this conversation and ideally i don't know how to figure it out but i'd like people to be able to participate in the conversation yeah. like i'm interested in talking to experts and and eccentric people and people who are out of the box but i'm also like anybody who i could have a conversation with i'd like to have a conversation with and like because one of the downsides to podcasts is people it leaves you with the illusion that you're actually having a conversation when there's something to be lo- like that you're like you're watching a conversation it's you're still, not having it's a still conversation. web 2.0 it's not yeah. it's not quite 3.0. exactly you're right when web 3 comes in i have this podcast world so it's so uh, it's really refreshing to be able to have a conversation like this i like that paradigm of of the the people who are holding who are keeping it in the safe which, which gives you the freedom to go out and, and experiment. There's a great um, similar paradigm which is employed by Avram Yeshua Heschel, uh, who says he, he contrasts Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Shmuel, He's, who had radically different approaches to interpreting Torah. Uh, Akiva was like the most creative and aggressive interpreter. Like any single, every time the Torah said S uh, or Ace, which, is, which is, has no translation in English, he would say this, it's here for a reason, we have to learn something new from it. So S is the rabbis is, is his expression. It's to add something. So uh, when when the verse says S Hashem tira, fear the Lord your God. The S doesn't even translate into English. He says it's the rabbis to to add the sage that you have to fear the sage to, um, or or kabid S avicha ve'esimecha is the rabbis achicha gadol is to add like in honoring your parents you also have to. So this is he's like incredible, like creative and sort of any any extra and and like he's he's. And then Rabbi Shmuel says, no, 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 no. The Torah 
is not is not not every word is like the Torah is speaking to humans. It's gonna use human expressions. Like not everything can you just go and make interpretations of, and and uh, and we, in retrospect, we don't understand perhaps how radically different these positions may have been, right? Because we we just lump them all into they're all you know part of Chazal, and, and therefore they're Chazal all like, says they're, Chazal, yeah, they're like they're like Taisvis, like they're just one monolithic, yeah. but. The Gemara says that that during the great debate between between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel, there were almost two different Torahs in Ju- Judaism. Almost split into into the Judaism of Hillel and the Judaism of Shammai. Like these were radically different visions. Um, and history has the tragedy of history is they all become homogenized into one. But so Heschel says very beautifully that that Yishmael. That's not the tragedy. That's the, what we're looking for is unity. Um, but we don't want to lose the richness and diversity in that unity. We, we don't. Want, we don't want it to be. A, we don't want sameness. We want. We want unity, in which, in which she has a little nest in there. It's very cute. We want the unity in, in which we can hold on to the to the multiplicity. When we can hold on, if all the letters of the Torah right become smudged into one big blob, that's not a safer Torah. We need them to be differentiated. If even the vav and the hay are touching each other, we've lost our unity because we're not able to clearly differentiate the grand multiplicity that makes up the unity. Right. So. So I think I think we lose the, the the beauty of Judaism when when it's like all of this Chazal say right so um, which which I've probably done twenty times during, during the conversation, but so Heschel says that you do a very good job. Um, something I w- will work on is like you do a very good job at remembering names and quoting and where referencing exactly. your sources. So you do like to to, to this to the degree of which I think if I were to. If I were to have an easier time listening to your lectures, I would figure out a way for you to not have to say the names, right? Like the realm says, I'm not going to quote names for the right, sake of bre- right, brevity. Right, right. Is, like my brain just goes, what? <laughs> like, but yeah, so. I th- yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I think there's a certain, um, like the, the things and people that you love, you're able to remember. Like that's that's how I see it. And like if you're in love, I mean, I don't remember, like living people, I, I have such, if you t- like people tell me their name and it takes me like 20 times to remember their name, it's, I, I feel so bad <laughs> until I love them and then I know their name, right? But like these dead people, I love them so much. <laughs> like I just, I, I, right. they're they're part of me. Yeah, ben Shapiro had a line. He's like, like he says something along. He's like, I have much more interesting conversations with the people I read in these books than I do with most of the people inevitably, around me in the world. Inevitably, like, <laughs> um, which is a tragedy. But I, so so oh, so Heschel says like this. Uh, Heschel, who's a magnificent poet, I think the first person to tone me on to. To, to a certain form of mysticism, which I hadn't been exposed to in my own Chabad upraising, and I'm thankful for him for bringing a new. He, he, he's really this, like in, in many ways, the the scion of of the of the Apter of the the Apter Hasidic dynasty, and he brings a tremendous poetic and prophetic. He wrote in Yiddish. He wrote. He wrote. This is the crazy thing. So he he's writing initially in Yiddish. He he spoke something like eight languages, like one of these, you know. Lots. He his English is so exquisite. When I first started reading him, and still sometimes today, I need to sit with it like a dictionary or a thesaurus to understand what he's saying. And his poetry is just, just enough to 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 drive you to your knees in worship, um, to drive you to awe, which is like such a big theme. A W E is is like a huge theme in his writing. He learned English on the freaking boat coming from Europe as a grown adult. <laughs> On the way to America, that's when he learned English for the first time, and he's and like the level of his—it just—it it, it makes him like it's just—it's just crazy to yeah, have such to have such power and proficiency and prowess and command of a language. He learned it in his thirties. Goddamn it! <laughs> Anyhow, um, what to aspire to? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think yeah. Then you think of someone like Shelley, who like 
who, who revolutionized English poetry and then died when he was 24 or something. Anyhow, there's, there's a lot to, to feel inadequate from. Right, but, Ramchal that was done at 29, or Rabbi uh, Arya Kaplan was... We'll have to forgive ourselves. We'll have to forgive ourselves for only getting our act together in our, in our late 20s. So he writes like this, that, that Rabbi Shmuel is the great, is the great curator. He's the, he's the conserver of Judaism. He's the one that keeps, he makes sure here is the, here is the, the treasury, the museum, which is Judaism, and I'm going to make sure that not a single fingerprint is going to deface the truth of the past. And you need Rabbi Shmuel, you need the Haredi to do that. And then you need Rabbi Kiva, who's going to say, I'm going to be a, an elephant in a china store, and I'm going to break every truth we know, and I am going to begin from the age of 40, right? We, can, we don't have to feel so bad because he started at 40, mm -hmm. to to turn things on its head and to rediscover truth for us and to be and to, to interpret every superfluous letter until we have a living and vibrant. And if there was only Akiva, you'd be lost in some sort of vague, sloppy reconstruction of Judaism that has nothing to do with its past. And if you only had Rabbi Shmuel, you'd have a museum which would collect dust and no one would be interested in visiting, right? right. Not, to, not to mention these, these names together in the same sentence, but Hitler in his attempt to destroy Judaism wanted to leave Prague as the museum of the lost people, right? And thank God, we're not just a museum. We're a living artifact and we're growing and we're changing and we're mutating. And part of that is dangerous, right? There's, there's, we, may be, we may be messing up. We may be doing things that are heretical. One of the, and <laughs> we probably are. The biggest, the biggest, the, the biggest uh, danger in life is death. That's the biggest <laughs> danger. So, uh, so, so I think that, that's the challenge. How do we dance between Akiva and Yishmael? How do we hold And do we have to dance? Like meaning... Like, can I trust that there are people holding on and I can just like, like I can just be radical and like, I can I be, I don't know. Was Mendelssohn or like, like we're like, he's rad radical. Like the analogy I really like that Jordan Peterson pointed out, I think in his biblical series of like a field, right? Like it, it created the Sade. Like what is that concept of a, of a field, right? It's it's an it's an there's a clearing of an area, yeah. right? A defined area of space, and then there's the field of psychology, is the field of philosophy, field of mysticism, field of science, field of medicine. All these different fields, right? It's this, this defined space, and at the center of at the center of the field is the safest place to be, right? That's where the bonfire is. That's where yes. that's where that's where it's safest. And if you go outside the field into the woods you're lost yes. you're no longer you're not in the field yes where you want to be is at the borders in one foot in one foot out yes. where you're expanding the boundaries of the yes. field and yes. i really really like that because yes. but then you have occasionally the analogy that i added on to it like you have the co-firm the biggest people who went outside of the field but what they did is they essentially created almost like a clearing out yes. there and yes. we connected yes. the two places yes, and we oh we, like the modern orthodox world and Rav Soloveitchik owes their existence to somebody like the um, Moshe Mendelssohn yes. having made those mistakes yes. and failed, yes. right? But because he made it clear. And I like, and I'm, I'm like, there's this part of me who's like, okay, like, it's more exciting. Like you get to be the, to be out into the wilderness, to be exploring. Yeah, yeah. Those, peop those people are really important to me. I, I, I mean, someone like Spinoza, yeah. right? Who's definitely thrown out. Exactly. He, 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 he creates a huge clearing and, and I think that I think that the word, I think that chassidus, uh is is not other than it and it's it, the bridges and I, I think the most I think you're so right about this the most, the most interesting place to be the, the, the expression that I've the, the metaphor that I've used which is a very old Jewish profession is to be a smuggler right Jews Jews um, <laughs> yeah exactly Jews, Jews who spoke many languages and who had contacts across borders 
um, were often were off, their 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 livelihood was was in smuggling. Uh, there's a joke that was said when when uh, when countries would 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 come to um, treaties to resort to remove their borders, like the EU, where you can now move across freely. There's no tax and tariffs. The Jew says, like, like how, how did you make a living without borders? So I think being I think being a smuggler, where you're on the boundary of order and chaos, you're on the boundary of the known and the unknown, you're on the boundary of orthodoxy and heresy. I think because if you're just in heresy. It's dangerous, and it takes someone like a Mendelssohn or someone like a Spinoza to be there and to still be a saintly person. And you look at the consequences of what happens to their kids, though, exactly. which is the real, exactly. yeah. that's, the, yeah. that's there, what keeps me... Continuity is not something which comes with that profession. Um, although I think they themselves had very profound, meaningful lives. But, and then continuity is what happens in the field, right? You're, you're guaranteed that you can pass on the truths. So I think, I think the best place to be is to be, is to be dancing on that border, is to be a smuggler, is to be, is to be a pirate between the two. Right. Is to is to wear the clothing of both and speak the language of both and, and know the tools of both. It's, it's to, if you can both sit in a base medrash and 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 learn a shagas are and a, and a ritva and a masha and a, and a taz and, a, and and you can also whip out a podcast and be on TikTok and right. and know how to pull out a meme. I think you're a smuggler and I think I think that that's the right. best place to be. It's like a and I love the analogy. The Jews of old like like, like uh, I just started talking about this and listening to paying attention to this now. The whole Freudian and whether right he's. Like, where, like, did he know Yiddish? Of course he knew Yiddish. His mother, and when he uses certain words and translates right. things, is he smuggling? Like, here's ideas, like when I use the word Yetzer, right? Yeah. You have all of, as a Jew, when you read the word Yetzer, you have all of your conceptions throughout all our history of the word Yetzer to, to yeah. like, I've encodified myself. And then like, where Hitler was arguably right was like, is this just a Jewish science, right? Like, mm. or, like, and you're just smuggling it? Mm. Or, right, like, you're, you, you're, you're hot, you're enclosing it in something else, and it's just Jewish science, right? Like it was Mein Kampf, and yeah. that, the, the, like so. There's, we are always like smuggling, like and you and you look at all these great Jewish thinkers who weren't known as for their Jewish thinkerness, and you and you read, and you and you just read how much like MS and Torah is there, and whether or not we're just reading it in, or they meant to place it there, or there's some type of a shkacha, yeah. even if they were unconscious. Yeah. I love one of the jokes I learned of, uh, right? There's uh, there's two jokes that Freud, two jokes that Freud wrote that are quite, uh, I don't think he created them. He was probably just hearing them growing up in his house, but there's the joke of Mrs. Cowan at the country club. Waiter, waiter, the waiter comes up and spills hot soup on her and she goes, Oy vey! whatever that means, right? There's this certain, like the Jewishness, like that pot, like you're in the country club. We're all like, I'm not like, uh, here. And then what was the other joke of? I don't remember the other joke will come to me, but there's a, like that, we are the smug, like we're smuggling God in wherever we can. And like, uh, who's the big guru meditation self-help guy now, bald? Uh, every single hack self-help person, like the, he's their God. He's a, he's a chiropractor. Um, What's his name? Whatever he's a med- he has all these really good meditation videos on 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 YouTube. But he's like science is, and he's probably stealing from somebody else. Science is just the language of mysticism today, right? Like this, like this is they're just the mystics, right? Whether it's Spira, no, um, like the most famous Deepak Chopra. No, he's not so much stuff up. Whatever, but Third like there's like the, there's 
we're just sm- like we're smuggling in this idea of God with yeah. within our science, and we're just like we're all pursuing this unity, right? Everybody's just smuggling in God everywhere they can go. But I think the smuggling goes both ways, right? I th- there's there's this really really wonderful line from Ruff Cook, who is like such a he's such a terrific thinker and such a like. I think I think the real people that get him are the ones that reject him in some sense, right? Because I don't his legacy within the with the modern orthodox Datilo Mi Israeli worlds is something of a fallen legacy. I think. I hope I don't I hope I don't offend anyone by saying that. I have um, no problem. I love being offensive. Just creates more conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the people there's like he's he's rejected in a lot of the like the Haredi worlds, whatever that means. Um, because he really is a radical thinker and, and he does he shows the smuggling the other direction too he's a thinker like people before him like Hillel Zeitlin who was deeply engaged in contemporary philosophy particularly in Nietzsche and in, in Spinoza who, who, who Riff Cook quotes and then his students uh, and his son um, clean up the quotations whatever it is but um, he says that what is everything that happens in existence uh, and this is both something which he's echoing Torah and echoing Hegel as well in the same breath, uh, happens in sort of the grand process towards towards unity, towards God. Uh, what what places atheism have in the grand march towards towards God, right? That's simp- that simply like that seems to be the antithesis of a march towards God. And he says that the role that atheism plays, and speaking specifically about about the scientific scientific revolution and Nietzsche and others, is that it comes to clear and clean our idea of God. Because that our, our idea of God can collect all of these, like, cr- like what's it called on a ship where you have those um, barnacles? The, the, yeah, barnacles, which which like attach themselves to the ship, and you need to scrape them off. He says that our our ideas of God, the same way that we're smuggling God into the forest, right? We need to smuggle the forest into, into yeah. God, into, into religion, because other because we Absolutely. In, in in today's Jewish world and in other traditions as well, God is like some sort of patriarchal monarchical alien who man comes from out of out of space right man of the sky who comes to who comes to spe- like and that's clearly not what the mystics think about when they're thinking of god as soon as god is something other than than reality then you're not talking about god anymore as soon as god is some sort of like dis like di- even a disembodied consciousness that is separate like that's not god right so he says that atheism comes to to clean our god concept so that we can come to so that we can actually come to god right it's part of the process it's part of that dialectical yeah. that hegelian process of of, of affirmation and negation, which brings to the greater synthesis, right? The thesis antithesis. Um, so I think that the smuggling goes both ways. I think, I think yeah, that we're, because we, we, we're take like stealing, right? And, and the, yeah, like, or YY Jacobson is doing a really good job at smuggling, right? Where he's like, there is so much MS, right? Out in the world that you're rejecting. And I just need to figure out a way to smuggle it Correct. into your conception which makes our conception of God stronger. Correct. And then what happens simultaneously is the outside world gets our Kabbalah, they get it translated into Latin, Greek, right. whatever, they right. get our Torah, right. they get our wisdom, and then they become stronger. And like the us versus them, which does exist, is that much harder to make distinctions between, right? Like me as a Jew in America, like 98% of my values, like you could, like, right. you, is it because I'm Jewish or because I'm American, yeah. right? There's yeah. a certain lack of distinction. Yeah. So there's... Yeah, the it, way I, yeah. and it becomes a mutually enriching process yeah. where, they're, where they're able to feel and I think that that's like one paradigm like from the secular to the sacred and, and vice versa and then a lot of the work which I'm trying to do on the channel uh, which was done by people like Rib Zalman Shachta Shalomi and, and, and others is to smuggle between traditions and this is and I mean when I say Rib Zalman this goes back to 
someone like a Ramban Rambam who's smuggling Sufi practices into Judaism and vice versa. Um, and I think the smuggling happens there too, where, and we didn't get to speak about this, but the, 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 the particular genius and truth of Jewish mysticism can encounter the particular truth and genius of Islam and Christianity and Jesus, and, and, and we can smuggle between them. We can, we can learn mindfulness from the Buddhists, we can learn uh, zikr from, from the Muslim, uh, and we have, we have in Judaism what to teach too. And, and there's no learning without teaching. And I think that uh, sort of the age of religion where it was this zero-sum game, where it was this competitive economic where I, for me to be right, you have to be wrong. And the more wrong you are, the more right I am. And we're going to have a medieval disputation. I'm going to prove you wrong. That is so like Judaism of like the, of, of yesterday. And that is so religion of yesterday. We live in a new economy where it's like there's a rising tide that raises all boats. And that's both between traditions and it's between religion and secularity. And, I, and it, to me, that is like a radically new vision. Um, there's a scholar by the name of um, Shaul Magad who calls it paradigm shift Judaism, mm-hmm. uh, working with, with uh, Zalman particularly. Um, but, I th- and, but I think that it's, it's, it's the way forward. And, and I say that it's new, it's not new. Like we were doing this under Hellenism. Philo of Alexandria was doing this for Judaism. The Ramam was doing this with, with Al-Farabi and Al-Ghazali and Ibn Rushd and Ibn Sina. Like this has been happening since forever. Uh, this happened during the Renaissance between people like Yonatan Amelo and um, Del Megiddo and, and Pico del Marangelo and, and Marcello Ficino. Like this has been happening for, for hundreds of years. One of the um, big uh, uh, farm is just a translation into Yiddish from uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, autobiography. That happens too. Like, like, that happens like, there's too. a certain, like, that's, yeah. and that's stealing, right? Yes, there's yeah, a certain yeah, amount of stealing. That's a worse version like, of that. Like, yeah. But it's, there's a, it's always, right, you said it's always been happening. Yes, yeah. And again, to me, it's like, there's this girl, like, oh, it's just they, like, they stole it from us, right? right. And they're just stealing right. from us. No, like, it's, such a, it's, this, it's, it's such a wrong paradigm. It's such a wrong paradigm, us stealing from them. Who's older? Who's bigger? Who's better? It's such a, it's such a yesterday paradigm. The question is, how do, we do, how do we do this now in a way that's really not denigrating either ourselves or the other, but in a way that's so validating? Like, how can I be so deeply Jewish and so, so rootedly, deeply, richly Jewish in my, in my bones that I'm comfortable enough to, to learn a Buddhist way of meditating that I can that I can strengthen my own Avedis Hashem through and and this for, for many people this is like way too far and this is heresy already but I think I think it's the work that needs to be done it needs to be done in a way that's so deeply rooted in our particular in our particularity that 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 transcends the necessity for me to be protective over my I, I'm, I'm so deeply and richly Jewish I've, I've, there's no fear at all that being inspired by a Christian poet is going to move me away from Judaism even one iota because it's all bringing me to the unity which is God exactly. and, and the question is how do we do that thoughtfully how do we do that richly how do we do that respectfully how do we do that intelligently how do we do that that respects difference and differentiation and knows that I'm not I, I am a Jew and I, and, I, and, I, and I want to remain a Jew how do like to me that is the question of, for religion for today and I think the more that we ask that question, the more beautiful of a religion we're able to create. Wow. Yeah, it's the question. That's my, like, it, that was what, uh, when I, I'm from, from birth with hiccups, right? That's the way I put it. I went from like, whatever, I wasn't religious from like 12 to 18, 19 years old and went to yeshiva and like it was a certain shift, but it was whenever I was picking up whether it was seven habits or, uh, or flow and any of the self-help books I started with or the art conversation was like, and then you start to read a little bit of science, you start to read a little flaw, and then you start to like, like, wow, like this truth of Torah that I know, like you see it here, and you see it here, and I see yes. it here, and I see it yeah. here. And it like, it was almost a validate, like, like, it's like, 
if it's true and it's and, and you can and, and we believe in a world where somehow you can recognize God yes. not from a top-down approach yes. but from a bottom-up yes. approach then that means like like that's my biggest evidence that yes. God is real and this yes. is true like there is truth yes. and I pursue it because it's it's just popping up because because truth is just truth truth isn't Jewish truth doesn't have a bar mitzvah and, and gefilte fish right. truth, God isn't God isn't Jewish either right this is this is like the this is like a really weird mistake we make truth truth is universal and ubiquitous and you can discover wherever you see it and it's that which is which is there and that's that as you're saying that strengthens our truth i i went through my own hiccup period mm-hmm. uh, and really encountering like mysticism in, in other traditions was like wow this thing that i've been taught is also being discovered by other traditions how like how much more true is my truth and how much more beautiful and rich and diverse and complex and nuanced um, so, so I think I think that those like those two like how do we see truth? Is is am I true like only if I'm true? And it's challenging because like if we think about this as some kind of relationship, right? Like you're 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 a married man, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in a relationship with your spouse. Um, so to you, she is she's like the, the the beauty and truth of your life, right? And 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 maybe so for many years. I hope so. But you're not oblivious to the fact that there are many married people in the world, and they have, a, you know, a partner in their life, which is also, you know, a core beauty and value, and and something which they inspires them. So maybe I should be married to their wife, right? Like, is that like <laughs> exactly, you don't exactly? Have that. So, 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 there's a sense where, like, oh, if I recognize beauty in someone else's partner, then that's like some sort of infidelity on my behalf, and and that's. That's a that's a very insecure place to be in a relationship, right? Ideally, a relationship should be so strong that it's like, no, I'm so in love with my with my partner that I can that that yes, I could see and I could see another relationship and I could I could learn from their relationship how to be a better spouse. Oh, like I was at their I was at their table for a Shabbos meal and I saw the husband got up to clear the plates before the wife did and let her sit and wow, I want to do that in my house. Like, mm-hmm. like that comes from a place where this, the most central thing is your like. Is, is your relationship with your wife, and you're not looking to to replace it with someone else's relationship. You're not looking to give up your relationship with God to embrace, you know, the the, the Buddhist nothingness or or the Allah of Islam. Like you're looking, you're looking to see how we're all serving one central truth, and how do I, from a place of deep confidence and security, take take on more truth and more beauty and more goodness. And I I do this all the time. I I watch people, Jewish or otherwise in their religious worship and practice and and I'll, I'll notice they do something in, in 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 their devotion in their worship in their prayer in their humility in their gratitude I'll be like damn that's good i want to i want to do that too i want to pra- i want to i want to bring i want to bring that in Reb Zaman called the spiritual voyeurism right where you're watching another relationship and and the, the the great cosmic like irony of this is that we believe that it's ultimately it's not different people that we're in love with we're all ultimately in love with the same reality and that's mm-hmm. that's perhaps where the analogy breaks um, is that these are all paths to what we believe is the same truth as you sent me the art of loving right from Eric, Eric from yeah and that was one of the books that changed just like changed my life um, and I have to reread it I've read, one of those books I read it multiple times over years because I someone got up and said like and I was I got married at 20, so like, and I'm a little schnook in yeshiva, <laughs> and and he's like, and I'm a, and, and you, if you were to read my journals of like, like, okay, I have the girl, and like the amount of anxiety and stress, like you just read it in the journals, yeah. and it's like I like there was this line that stuck, it's like you can't say I love you if you don't first have 
I, yeah. right? You can't, yeah. If you don't have a yes. conception of self, yes. right? Eric from does mature love versus immature love. Yeah. I love you because I need you, right? And that, that's immature love and yeah. I need you because I love you. Yes. And like this, but when I was reading Eric Fromm, who grew up, his father was a chief of Frankfurt, Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And he grew up in a very Jewish household and he say rejected it and left it but the values come through but i almost conceived of it right he's like you can't be loving and and not and love this and not love that love is just like you have to love everything there's like an indiscriminate unity to your love yeah and that's where i almost think he's a little wrong is he's he is um he's like the vision of avraham prior to him come avraham coming to the realization that he has to choose one of his kids Mm. Because in the end of the day, right, what is the whole first book of Barashas is like in the 10th and final test. This is a take I really like. There's like, it, oh, what's the test? Oh, he had to take up his son and put him on the altar. Like, is that the test? Like if God came out and spoke to you and told you what to do and you believe, like, and you had this, like, how is that a test? You just go do it. Yeah. And the difficult part for him was take your son, your only son, the it's one that you love. And that dialogue that Rashi fills in, yeah. I, what do you mean? I have to, like, yes. and him... I have to select one and I have yeah. to be discriminant and have yes. din and gavura yeah. of some sort and select. Yeah. yeah. That was his. And so I think I was like, and then kill your darling. Yeah. And then kill <laughs> it. Um, like nonetheless. And, uh, but you're saying as opposed to from's universal, uh, universe, there is, there is, we need the discrimination yeah. and distinction. Yeah. I think from might have got lost in whether the, the, the Frankfurt school or yeah. like a little bit, but nonetheless, yeah. I, th- I think I think Fromm's point is is perhaps reconcilable with what you're saying because from it's been some time since I read the book. From what I remember him arguing there, is that we conceptualize love as like this thing that we possess, right? Like, um, like I want to be in love with another person, and like something that's going to be between us. And, and from for the for the first half of the book, at least, argues that love is a state of being which you have to be. Like you have to be love so that like when there's someone that can come into your life. As, and it's very different. Instead of like being this object-oriented thing, it's like, oh, if only there was some perfect person who then could be the recipient of my love, then there would be love yeah. in my life. And Fromm's like, no, no, no. You have to make love in your life. Yeah. And do. then people will be able to come into that and you can hold them in that. So I think, I think that there's maybe space for both where yeah. like you can, be, you can be loved. You can be, you can be, you can be the, like, the love of God. There's this beautiful, beautiful piece of Zohar, I think it is, where it says that while, uh, while Avram lives... Uh, the sphera of chesed is on vacation. Can I get you some more water? Oh, I have my bottle right there. Uh-huh. While Avram lives, while while Avram is alive, uh, the sphera, the divine attribute, the divine quality of, of loving kindness, um, is on a paid leave. Basically, it's not the exact language of the Zara, but <laughs> but basically that it's it's nostalgic. It's uh, it goes it, like it, it ascends into back into the pleroma of some sorts. Uh, and the reason is because Avram. Avram is the conduit of chesed, and he becomes the living spirit. That's what it means to be Merkava, right? He is the chariot of the divine. Uh, he, he, he is love. He becomes divine love in the world in that, in that what was doing that role previously, what was the cosmic metaphysical channel for that is basically become redundant because Avram has become the sphere of chesed. So from is saying, as far as I understand him, you must become love, and then there can be particulars, and those particulars will be particular, right? You won't love any random woman that walks down the street as much as you love your wife, but it's going to be built in a foundation right. of you being loving, and that and, and that will manifest in you being kind to the stranger, and you being and and um and his his Judaism and his, and his prophetic 
ethic really comes through both in that book and in his other works as well. I've only read Escape from Freedom, and which is unbelievable. What's his other one? Uh, something in Civilization. Like the whole, the whole last quarter of the book is just him repeating like all of the best parts of of, of the of the prophets. Basically, he's like he's very, very, he's very, very deep in that. Um, so I think that, I think that it's it's able to. We're able to have both. We're able to to hold something in a in a universal sense and to, to particularize it, and they're not mutually exclusive, but they but they're mutually interdependent. Do you have a watch on so you can tell the time? There was one. I do have to pick up my kid. Two fifteen. Still good. Um, there was yeah. one other thing that you said that that would trigger a thought, and the thought escaped me now. Come back, come back to me now. I hear the spirit calling me. Yeah, the way I heard Riff Cook is, I mean, I didn't hear from Riff Cook. I heard something else. Like, we, had the, the, we, are, we owe everything to atheism because, <laughs> like, they're absolutely correct. God does not exist. Right, right, right. Like, the, he, he, in any which way you can conceive of anything or any one existing or any existence he does not exist that way yeah right he is primal existence yes. he is yeah. like yeah yeah it's a very it's a very weird thing that happens in theology and, and chassidus really really gets very deep into this point where um god is that which exists which does not need to exist to exist it's uh let me see if i can remember the the, the tongue twister in hebrew it's it's um mm, how does it go in Hebrew? Metzias bilti mechoyv metzias nimsa. That which that which is without needing to that w- that which is without needing to to be to to be isness basically. Right. There's there's actually a very funny, I I say funny but it's I think it's being done seriously. The re- the, the rabbi reads the very first line of Mishnah Torah right, which most every kid that went to yeshiva knows. That you said you said this from the Chachmalei, the Sheishim Atzurishim, who Mamti Kalim Tzayim, that the foundation of all foundations, and this is Ramam's like the big, his opening like catechism. This is like what the Jew must believe, uh, and he and he believes that it's demonstrable like on Aristotelian metaphysics and logic. Uh, like it's not even a matter of faith. He doesn't use the word faith there at all. It's just like science for him. Right. The first mitzvah is leida. Leida. It's not, ma, it's not muna. It's to faith. Know. It's yeah. to know. So so he writes uh, to know that there is this primal being, this first cause, whatever it's going to be translated, Matsu Rishon. Um, the word Matsui actually is a great word in English, in, in Hebrew, because it, it, me- it means that which is found, which is the same in Arabic. Wujud, which is being, is also that which is discovered or found. And in English, it's not the same, which, which has, there's a sense of, of discovery embedded into it. It's, it's the, first, the first which is to be found, which is, which is quite nice, which doesn't translate into when we say existence, right? It, it's a bit more static. Anyhow. Um, and this first existence, this first found thing, brings everything else that's found into being from its own existence. Um, and then the Ram writes, If you're going to contemplate the, the, the thought that God does not exist, and basically goes on to enumerate all the reasons why you'd be wrong. Why God, why, uh, basically saying that nothing else at all could exist either, right? Something, uh, like there's no other mitzvahs if 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 the existence of God doesn't exist. 
the Rebbe reads this exactly what we're saying now with in line with Rav Kook, which is just such a great reading. And it's it's so beautiful how Judaism like really does not care to turn the text on its head. This is way before the like the postmodernists were doing it. Uh, like this is definitely like and to be fair, like talking about smuggling Judaism or the, like Jewish silence. Derrida was Jewish. These guys, these guys are all Jewish. Yeah. So and they're, and they're, they're doing something very Jewish in, in what they're doing. So the Rebbe writes like this: that there's one level of belief, which is you say they say this from the Chachma. This is your, your ground A, where you start off. That God exists, and that's what we teach children, right? God exists. Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere, right? The im If you've learned some Chassidus, if you learned some Kabbalah, if you've had an Aliyah Hadas, im If you ascend. That God's existence is beyond existence, that God does not exist in the way that we talk about things existing, then you've come to the truth because nothing exists and, and God's existence is beyond existence, <laughs> which is, which is, which is like topsy heavy yeah. reading Ramam. But it's this point that like our categories of existence, and this, this the Zayar says that, that, right? In Pasach we read this on, on Fridays from uh, the introduction to, to, to Kanezer. That, that when we say God is one, we don't mean God is one like the cup is one. We don't mean God is like, none, none of our categories work for God anymore. And this is Ramam's point. That even existence, and this is what Plotinus says, that God is, is hyper-uzia, God is beyond existence. And this is, I think what, what you're saying, Rav Cook is reading from the atheists, that if we think about God as some sort of being that exists in our categories of being, we are committing the greatest heresy. Mm-hmm. And what, what we're doing is we're reducing God to an object. We're objectifying God. Which means that God is something that can be possessed, something that can be known, something that can be grasped, something that can be quantified and measured. And God is none of those things. God is that which we will never reach. And and it's and that's what that's in the Hebrew word of Matsui. It's it's that which is always being found. Being found, right? right? The Chaiker, it's interesting, what, what word do we use in Judaism for a philosopher? We we call it we call it, we, we call so <laughs> oh, okay, so we do translate philosophy in modern yeah. Hebrew. Uh, and the same way that Arabic translates falsafa as philosophy, but the, the an organic Hebrew word is is chakira. Chakira is philosophy in Judaism, mm-hmm. and the choker is the one who who literally investigates. In modern Hebrew, choker is is like an investigator, a researcher, a, 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 a private eye is called a choker in modern Hebrew. Because while in Greek the etymology is beautiful, philosophy is is the lover of wisdom, philosophia, which is which is which is which is beautiful. Wisdom as applied knowledge. How do we take knowledge and 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 love it enough that we want to bring it into our lives? Like it's beautiful. But but the Hebrew connotation is slightly different, and and here's the beauty, the richness of of, of, of language and diversity, that it that it's a chakira, it's 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 this act of investigating, it's it's looking for the for the matsui, it's looking for the for that which can be discovered, which we can never really discover, it's it's v'ligdulato en cheker says 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 King David, that God's greatness can never be discovered, and so so the chaker is cheker and Kate, the Ramam also says in. Um... How to the mitzvah of to love God? How do you come to love God? Right. Essentially, drill into his existence. Right. Comes to realize that it's enkets and cheker. It's, it's correct. A, so, so being involved, being involved in the chakira of that thing which <clears> is cheker, <throat> like is there any is there any more like beauty in the darkness? Like knowing knowing that, and there's there's a sense of like the chaker is not the one who gives answers, right? Socrates is put on trial and put to death in Athens, not because he teaches the, the wrong conclusions. He's put on trial for making, for, for teaching children to question, right? He makes the youth question. And, 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 and whereas in, in, in ancient Greece, he is forced to drink a cup of poison for doing that. And we have that tremendous painting from Raphael where Socrates is holding up his goblet and he's giving his last great drasha to his students and, and, and Plato is sitting there transposed because he's only later in history sitting there contemplating backwards the scene 
as he writes the Apology, he's one of his great dialogues. But in Judaism, as opposed to murdering the people who question, we enshrine and institutionalize, we force questions. The Pesach Seder, perhaps the central method of transmitting the Jewish narrative throughout the generations, is a night of questioning. There is the four questions of the four sons, right? The Manishtana, which we force the child, no matter how embarrassing it is, to get up and say. And then, if you ever studied the, the halachas of, of the Pesach Seder, there are 10,000 things that we do in the night, like Jews do, because we're a bit neurotic when it comes to details. Some of them have reasons, most of them... Just so they would ask questions. Kadesh Yishal like you read Mishnah Bar, you read, read like the Machabarama. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? So the children ask, which is so, like in Judaism, usually we have an answer for everything. The answer is, is not an answer, it's a question. The reason we're doing this is so that people question. So I think that spirit of questioning, the spirit of, of Chakira, after that thing which has Ein Cheker, Ve'ein Ketz, Ve'ein Tachlis, is like, I, I, love, I love that part of our tradition. And I, it's the only, it's the, like, what's the difference between, an, what makes, in order for something to be the highest possible aim, it has to be unachievable. Otherwise, because yes, yes. if you get there, then like, right, people are like, oh, I'm going to be the best athlete, best Olympic swimmer in the world. Okay, I have eight medals. Now what do yeah, I do? That, that was a goal that right. wasn't an aim. Right. Like that was a framework that I made with my friend Zach. Like, how do you decide whether something is a aim or a goal? And if, if you can get there, then then it's just a goal. Right. Um, and it goes into like what I believe is is right. I'm not trying to fit Judaism into Buddhism or any other. Me- it's I I think it's the highest possible aim, right? With no, Dea Mitis, knowing God, like putting that as your top of your aim. It the, the, the Raman puts it. It demands of you everything else. And your midos have to be in check. Your character. Your your your. You have to know Torah. You have to do all the mitzvahs. You have to do all. It, it demands of everything, but also encompasses everything. It says, um, which is you tell gadol limud or maisa, right? And it says, it says limud because it golem gadol limud shmevi limud right? Because because limud leans causes leads such to my so, like, so what the hell does that mean right. so then you're saying mice is more right. important what i think it is is what are they're asking what do we put at the top of the hierarchy right. Right. because if i put mice at the top it's it, it doesn't demand everything when you put de amitis under yes. it it demands yes. mice yes. it demand and yes. like in the, the balatania almost points this out in uh, either in Shaykh or in i guess because the only things i've been through fully um he says like this is Limud Garim the Maisa, and you can essentially. So, and then you're like, "What are you talking about? We have all these people learning in in base matters all day, yes. and their midos are horrible, yes. and their character traits are horrible. So clearly, that's a falsehood. Right. So, no, this is a litmus test. Right. If you're Maisa, yes. if you're embodiment yes. of it, that means you weren't really learning. Yes. You and like like that's what that means. It's not that Limud doesn't go, go on the Maisa. It's that you were not doing yes. Limud, and that yes. there's like that's how we quantify it. And like, what's the best way to to judge a philosophy or a theology is look at its adherers and see how they act in the world right and like people are like oh no how could you do that like you you look at all of the christian followers right and then you saw they did whatever they the like they come and slaughter all of the crusaders right right like like and they're all about love but then you see what happens yes. in, in action and yes. the discrimination so so or you look at places that take in buddhist philosophy and then the entire country is living in poverty and they're all missing like there's a certain missing of something like and what better better way to judge a philosophy than yes. its adherers by by the truth that shall know them by the truth that shall sorry know them. no no by the fruit by, by the, the fruit, fruit that shall know them, them. And that's, we'll go back to Eden. What was, was Ahava's uh, sin? 
Hashem said, do not eat from the tree in the center of the garden, right? Or Betochagan, right? And and she point made a distinction, do not eat from the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. Right, right. And, and there was no distinction, if you right. look for prior, of the tree and its fruit. Right. And the Midrashim talk about how you were able to look at a tree and you could tell which fruit it produced. And you look and at its fruit and you were able yes. to, and they would taste the yes, same, yes, right? The esrogates yes, taste, yes. like there was a certain integrity yes, of yes. the fruit and um, the labor and its fruit or the, the, the your, your identity and that which it produces. Mm. And what we live in, the world we live in now is one where where hypocrisy and mm. and paradox, like where you can be unintegral. Yes. There was this awesome TED talk given by, she was Brad Pitt's girlfriend, Jewish girl. She was an architect, I forget her name, Israeli architect and designer. And she based her life's work off of the, of, of the, these, the, where the fruit tree tasted, um, mm. um, based off of that Pasuk. And she's like, I wanted to create a, and she, with designers and engineers, a single material that you can use to create everything like so everywhere from the the foundational beams of the building mm. and the glass windows and it's like this mixture of like silkworms and 3d printed like this like this organic like or this obsession with organic architecture yeah. where like everything is made out of one where where there is where, where our fruits are expressive of us yes. and that's who we are and yes. the way i understand Right, so the Rambam is mistranslated in, in, in Sefer Mitzvahs in Hebrew as to saying that the mitzvah is a muna, right? Yes. Like it's a mistranslation pretty clearly because he, in many other places, says leda. Yeah. And, but the Sefer Achinuch, who does explicitly say a muna, so in this attempt to fuse the two, is, is right, you have Chachma, Bina, and Das. And, right, so in Das being like this bridge between the two, like Chachma is that which I know, Bina is how do I apply that which I know, mm -hmm. but then how do you get from what I know to what is, 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 is an awareness, Das is the awareness of that which I know. Mm -hmm. So when I'm like, right, like I know I have a leg, but it's not until I break my leg that I'm aware of the fact that I have a leg and then I have to walk differently and it yes. shapes who I am. Yes. So what is that mitzvah is, is the way amuna, right? Um, um, Oman or um, someone who, or, or, or like we're in Hebrew a, as a personal trainer or an artist, yes. someone who molds things. Yes. So to be, to be molded by that which I know mm. was the mm. way I nice. really, I heard it from nice. my Rebbe Roshestel. Nice. And to be molded by that which I know, that's what amuna nice. is. It's not like a, a leap of faith. It's like, I, like this pursuit of knowledge is awareness and to have my being and my existence be reflective of that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that the original sin is the divorcing of the tree from its fruit of, of our of our beliefs from our actions. That's that's the original sin. That's really that's really wonderful stuff. I, I think I think about this all the time when I think about contemporary philosophy. Two characters that that have perhaps the closest metaphysics to each other, um, Spinoza and Schopenhauer. They're both monists, right? Uh, in Spinoza's ethics and Schopenhauer's the world is will and representation, they basically come to the same almost almost identical arguments and almost identical. I mean, yes, there are differences, and, and people that are in the field will will spend a long time with the differences. But from the outside, there's there's a there's more similarity than difference. However, in their personal lives, they couldn't be two different people. Schopenhauer and maybe no fault of his own like he had a very rough childhood he's rough his mother was very tough on him parents were divorced like i'm not i'm not here to to like hop on, to on, on a dead guy but um but he, he they say he was a real piece of work like he was like from the few anecdotes that we have he, like <laughs> yeah he like he was just really really like a terrible dude and he got into a lifelong fight with hegel um and like he 
there's this narrative of uh, anecdote of, of the, he he kicks this woman down the stairs because she's annoying him like just really just a really terrible dude spinoza from everything we know is like just a saint he's a tzaddik he um his father passes away um and uh he's in court uh and he he wins the court case for his father's estate against his sister um but he has no need for like material possessions and objects because he's a pure philosopher and like as soon as he wins he like just gives all the money to his sister it's like here you can like he's still for principle like like there was a there was law and justice and he was the rightful inheritor but then he like and and we know that we know that through and through like that that he really stood for what he believed in when he lived in the hague his uh his landlord um saved his life more than once because at the time there was um without getting into the politics of the netherlands of the 1800s but there was a group known as the house of orange with the public and there was uh there was like some um fanatical catholics who wanted to overthrow um the house of orange and he very much believed in in this political party and and he was very, i mean he's the person who, who who gives us the formulation of separation of church and state that's a spinozistic idea and he saw that his ideas were being falling apart because of this new political movement and he goes out to protest and he would have been torn he would have been torn limb by limb by the protesters and his his landlord locks him in his room doesn't allow him to leave um and instead he puts out like a little cardboard sign which may have been the first cardboard protest um or like but but anyhow we see like it's a man who's deeply deeply his his ethic and his book is called the ethics is deeply deeply permeates every fiber of his being um and and his metaphysic of, and his metaphysic is a unitive one right he believes that like that all there is is god and and his ethic is deeply in line with that we did a whole series on the channel on looking at spinoza's relationship to mysticism and kabbalah mm. but he lives that uh, and it makes me think of i think it's mesakhas grachas a pretty well known gemara of uh, of of this question this person who's talking to a tree which is a good practice i recommend people talk to trees a bit more often okay and he says that he's he's the tree is really perfect he's he's praising the tree your shade is magnificent uh your your um you're you're right near the water you get you get you get rain all the time and and your color your complexion is just gorgeous and your smell is just like the, the smell of ganadin and he says elon elon like tree oh tree with what can i bless you and the only blessing you can give him is that your fruits will be like you and i think this is really an important blessing for people that are involved in the world of thought right because we're we're, we're steeped in in poetry and in music and in art and philosophy and in the best that humankind has ever produced and the blessing that we can bless ourselves and each other is that our fruits will be like us. That means both our own actions will live up to our aspirations, to our aims, and not just our goals. And that, uh, and that, that which we birth into the world, like our intellectual fruit, our spiritual fruit, our children, um, that they'll be. I'm, I'm, I'm always so concerned that, like, we, when you, when you share material with the world, you create, inevitably, you create an audience and a community and, and a family, people around that. And, and, and what if, like, the energy that I'm putting into the world has like an element of that's tainted with like with ego or with falsehood or with some idol and 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 that seeps into the people that i attract and i create something ugly i'm, I'm terrified right. of that right so so the bracha that that we say is elon elon that that our fruit should be like us amazing bracha probably and, a good and, thing yeah and, and like the best of us right <laughs> yeah like the, with the joke of the geom the the uh the ethics professor who got in trouble for sleeping with his students right. and he's like well you don't get upset at the geometry professor for not being a triangle right right um yeah but it, it, we do take it much more personally like right there's certain like when like the like when horrible things like the author of kids speak and all yes. the stuff that comes out like it 
versus any other human being who would who who would act that way, where it would be like that's horrible and despicable. There's yeah. a whole it, yes, that's horrible and evil. But there's a whole level of despicability that like yes. it becomes yeah. apparent when when you lack uh, inte- integrity and you preach something that you don't practice. I think there's a particular Jewish ethic there where we don't allow our leaders and 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 thought leaders and teachers to not represent what they teach. I think in other traditions that's a, like. In ancient Greece, there's like there's a bit, there's a bit more flexibility. Um, in in philosophy today, like you can teach ethics; you don't have to be an ethical person. I, I think that in Judaism, rightfully so, we conflate a person's actions with their with their um, with their behavior. But then, like, like you have these great minds, like it's like this goes into like we we tend to reject their whole Torah, right? We reject everything from them, and oh. that's I think where we admit, like we're so so that's so I don't think that's what we advocate in Judaism. The, the, there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. Um, and Mishnah is a very primary text for, for all of rabbinic Judaism, um, which says that there's four types of students, right? Um, I, I can't remember which parak it is in, in, in the Mishnah, but there's the student which which um, is like in one ear, out the other, and they're, they're compared to four different instruments. So there's like a funnel, just whatever comes in one side goes out the other side. Then there's like a bucket that just whatever comes stays. There's no discernment, like whatever you put in, it's going to stay there. Um, Bar Sid Enumabitipo is like in what another mission says. It's like this, this uh, lime-coated um, cistern which doesn't lose mm-hmm. a drop. Uh, and then there is the um, there's the, the sieve and the sifter. I'm not sure exactly how they're being distinguished, but but the point is basically one of them sifts and it gets rid of all the good and keeps the psalis, keeps the bad. It's the person who goes to the class just to hear the scandal, just to catch the person out, just to find you know how they can cancel someone. That's that's the that's the and then there's the person who was able to let go of all the bad and keep all the good. Because in all the teaching, there's going to be good and bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think even with great, and I, I think this is very true. And I think that we, we cannot, people, people that have messed up because we're human, we cannot throw out all, all of their wisdom. We, we don't throw out all of Picasso because he was a terrible, abusive spouse and partner. We don't throw out, you know, R.D. Ling and his insights into insanity because he was an alcoholic. We don't throw out Alan Watts. Because he, he because he didn't respect, you know, the people, his children. Like we don't throw out Cyclone A, which is uh, which is a pesticide that right. was used to kill Jews. Right. Uh, so and, so that so that that takes a lot of balance and equanimity and wisdom and maturity to be able to uh, to realize that our teachers are flawed and that they, that they have they have you know um, they have what's the expression glass feet or clay feet whatever the expression is. Um, even Reb Zalman, who I'm very deeply moved by, and I see myself as following in his footsteps in many ways it was Alman Shekht of Shalom he, he, he was not he, he was a person who had a lot that he left to be desired in, in his relationships and particularly challenge I think I think many many of these guru figures uh, challenge when it comes to uh, to being intimate and being faithful and being uh, it, particularly in those areas and, and, and it's sort of an unbounded love it's like it's like too much chesed without gura. yeah the, you have the like the fumtar agra which is a massive like any yeah. anybody who's great like I I, I automatically I know you struggle way more than anybody else yeah. struggles yeah like that that's uh, what the Gemara says the Gemara says yeah. call me shagaldim chaver yitzhar gadahimen that the, the greater the person is the greater their, their, their desires are right but I think the wrong answer is therefore to th- just throw out everything they said whole cloth to throw out the baby with the bathwater because then, because then we're left bereft, and we can't learn from their goodness. And it's there's a child, there's a, there's a childlike innocence which demands a purity and justice, because children are pure, and therefore they demand purity. Um, and and the child says, "Throw it all out," right? 
it's the adult who has sinned, who has fallen, who has, who has messed up and knows what it means to mess up and knows what it means to be a, a complex combination of good and bad. Right? Ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree where there is no pure good and pure evil anymore. And, and we know that in ourselves. What is it Dostoevsky who said that, that the line between good and evil runs down the heart of every single person. Um, so the source of all evils within with Carl Jung. Right. So, and, so once we recognize that in ourselves, we're no longer children, we're mature adults. We can recognize that in our great teachers and preachers that they messed up too. And, and Judaism doesn't white coat, it doesn't, doesn't white, what's? Whitewash. Whitewash, thank you. It's, it's leaders. It tells us when King David messes up it like but we still have to believe unbreakingly that he never sinned whatever <laughs> that means that's a whole a whole kind of a whole other conversation on that but there but there is we did i do think we're at least in my upbringing uh, we were guilty of this whitewashing of painting yes. idyllic whether yeah. it's the the art art scroll like characters of tzaddikim and it's it's so un-jewish it's so it's yeah. so deeply un-jewish the same gemara which says call me emerge david chata in is, is the same Gemara which reads Tehillim, which, which King David says, that my, my sins are before me all the time. How, how do, there's, and there's all sorts of creative readings yeah. of, of, how to, of how to bring them together. But, but we, don't, we don't do that. We don't, we don't create. We well, do sometimes. I, the way I like that is what we're saying here is his, like, he didn't, like, even from his mistakes, it somehow gets incorporated into the grander yes. picture. Yes. It's, they didn't get left behind, right? Even the Gemara's the opinions that we don't, hold by they're still written there in the Gemara or like, there's that like where we miss the mark is as important yes because if we if we just yeah. show you here's all of our success reels you don't get to learn from any of the mistakes but as soon yes. as you get to learn yes. from a mistake it's yes. the greatest gift in the world and I think there's no one greater than David who we learn that from we in in the in in the in, in the book of Psalms in the, in the 50s in the nuns there where he has his his the Psalms of lament and of and of repent um, they're so immense and for anyone that has ever messed up in life, and that's most of us, it's I think it's 52, 53 there, where he where he pours out his soul, where he where he where he speaks from a place of brokenheartedness, um, and and uh, he and he does it to the to the prophet to the prophet Nathan, right? Um, and we read this every Shabbos morning. We read this every night in Krishna before we go to sleep, because because he he because David is the quintessential leader, right? He is. The king, he's the line of Judah, he's the Messiah at the end of days, because not because he doesn't mess up, because he messes up and he takes responsibility and he stands up for his faults and he and he prays and he and he and he's and he's contrite and brokenhearted for his and 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 his sins. The Khatasi Nagdi Summit means that they that they stand with him at all times because they stand as a safeguard for him to protect him from messing up again, which is Ram's definition of chuva, but also because they allow him to to to, to climb on them. The difference between the tzaddik and the rasha, say chazal, chazal, is not that the tzaddik doesn't sin, is that when the rasha sins, he allows the sin to keep him down in the mud and to say, I am a sinner and to identify with his wrongdoing and to never get up again and to, and, and to, and to give up on himself. The tzaddik is sheva yipal tzaddik vikam. The tzaddik falls down seven times and gets back up again and falls back down and gets back up again and again and again and again and again. That's, that's what makes the tzaddik to to, um, to 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 err is human to for, to forgive is divine and we need to forg- we need to forgive ourselves which which uh, oh this is what I was this is what I this is I when you said something from from and I remember I forgot what I was going to say and he said from says that to be in love there needs to be an I that's in love 
uh, I think this, this ties back to the same point where, where the, the verse in Leviticus, I believe it is, says, you must love your friend as yourself. If there is no, if there is no self, then, then, there's, right. then there's no one to love, right? Um, which means that, um, that the same way that we're able to hold space for ourselves and for our own fallings and shortcomings and to get back up again and to have the divine forgiveness for ourselves as well, Right, the same way that we would do that for another, we we could do it for ourselves. Then we can extend that to others. We can extend that. We can extend that to to the visionaries, to the poets, to the to the teachers, to the rabbis, who, who who have messed up and, and they and, and must be held accountable. But we can also have place to, to learn from them. Um, and I think I think in today's society, it's a real it's a real problem. Which we're, it's it's something which is being battled, like today on 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 Facebook and Twitter and social media and TikTok, where. What do we do with people that messed up, right? And there's no path to repentance. You're forever like the Kevin Kevin Hart. Like he's like, I'm not going to apologize again because I already apologized for that. And if you didn't accept my apology then, why would you accept it now? And and I think it's a deeply un-Jewish idea. I think Judaism, one of the, one of the Judaism has many many incredible things which it teaches the world. One of them is is the notion of tshuva, and tshuva, as read by the Jewish mystics, is straight up supernatural. It has the power to change time. The way that the way that they read the rabbinic corpus is 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 that that one's sins becomes their merits. Yeah. Which means that we literally go back and rewrite, we rewrite history. Right, that's it, David Melch. Right? Yeah, and that's that's what it means that David Melch sins. And he came out of an incestuous relationship between a father and a daughter, right? The, he's descendant of Lot and correct. his daughters. Correct. Correct. Like correct. Out of this darkness, and correct. The ultimate redemption. Correct. Correct. Is yes. Embodied. Yes. And, and I think that's why that's why the Gemara doesn't want us to say that um, doesn't want us to, to dismiss. Yeah, we have to we have to we have to hold on to our humanity. We're not perfect, and we can't expect people around us to be perfect. And if we if 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 we expect that from ourselves, and and I think that for all of the beauty and striving um, in in the social justice spheres today. And many of the ideals, are, I think, are deeply Jewish, and, and and they ring in my soul. I think, I think maybe one place where Judaism can speak to that conversation is to is to stop striving for perfection both in ourselves and others, because perfection is is a deadly thing. To strive for for humanness, for a place that allows ourselves to mess up. We're allowed to have days when we're not feeling in the groove. We're allowed to have weeks and months where we're just feeling like a waste of space and if we demand perfection those moments will lead us to suicide because we because we because we see what we see on our screen we see the celebrities who always look perfect we see the instagram reels which are always with their perfect you know all the ums bikini and butts buddies. came out of it also exactly when you give a, a exactly and i do that myself i cut yeah, out my arms and butts i oh, sound so good right there <laughs> I'm, as, I'm, I'm as guilty i'm as guilty as anyone else for doing it and I think I think that's really dangerous because we create ideals which we cannot live up to ourselves, and we we hold ourselves to standards that we can't. And we need characters like King David, who fall and get up again. We need imperfection. We need bloopers. We need and and that's what allows us to to get through our periods when we're not living up to our ideals. Amazing. I think that's a good way to end because otherwise I'll be rushing and chubs my daughter <laughs> sweating. Ride my boat. Ride my bike here. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Keep up seeking.